The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Sensitive listeners should plug their ears with their fingers. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound. Quiet. Speak. Good world, what you watching? Hey, be specific. Is it time already for another episode of Subgenre Season 3 Time Twisters? You bet it is. We are dedicating this entire season to movies that tell stories that warp and bend and torque traditional linear timelines to create something brand new and exciting to behold. And the film in this episode spares nothing in its twisting of time. I'm your subgenre host, Josh Dassel, and for the second time in subgenre history, we're turning to the world of animation, specifically Japanese animation, so we can dig into the details of a time-altering movie by acclaimed director Makoto Shinkai. It stars the vocal talents of Ryunosuke Kamiki and Mone Kamishiraishi in the Japanese version, and Michael Sinterklaas and Stephanie Shea in the English translation. The comet is coming, and we might not be able to stop it. This is your name. And joining me in Studio K, by way of the wires, uh, here on Zoom from the West Coast, is our resident voice on animation. She is a writer of animated series at Noggin, over there in Burbank, California, and also a return guest host, to whom we say glad to have you back on Subgenre. It's Mary Thurman. Hello, Mary. Josh, I am so excited to learn I'm your resident voice on animation. That makes me feel so <laughs> special and fancy. This is only the second animation episode we've ever done. You've been in the first one and you're going to be in the second one. So I think that kind of does it by default. I am your only voice on animation <laughs> and that makes me the resident one. And the one most qualified to do this because I will say up front, as I said in the last episode, I have zero qualifications to be talking about animation. So I'm happy we have you here. <laughs> I'm really excited about this one. I am too. And part of it is the movie itself. And part of it is to be able to talk to you because this isn't your first rodeo. You've been with us before. You were here in season one for the one time we got you in here to not talk about animation, which was uh, <laughs> season one, episode six on K-19, The Widowmaker. And then in season two, we had you back for episode three to talk about Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. I'm really getting a wide repertoire here. I kind of have been trying to give bona fides to the movies that I've decided to pick this season to talk about it, why they fit into the time twister season. If you've seen this, it's very obvious why this fits. But without giving anything away, I just want to get your general thoughts on why we think this is a good fit for season three. This movie, much like a time twister, tells you what you need to know as an audience before you know that you need to know it. If you're paying attention, you'll be able to piece it all together. But in the moment, you just have to pay attention because they're going to twist it around to come back to some meaning that they've already given you towards the beginning. When I pitched this to you as, hey, let's talk about your name, uh, what did you think? So stoked. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's difficult because Miyazaki films are so very good. But your name is definitely top 10 animated films for me, like not just Japanese. So when you had it as like an option to talk about, I was like, does Josh want to hear me ramble about your name yes. for hours? Yes, of course I do. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's good because I'm going to and I'm just happy you're here to experience it and talk about it with me. Well, I will cop to the fact that I have not seen this movie before watching it for this episode. So that's where my lens on this film is going to be, so to speak, as we're talking about it. But let's kind of do what we do for everybody every episode. And mm-hmm. let's set the scene on this film. Let's talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff and what we know. So what do we know? First off, there are two titles for this film, aren't there, Josh? The Japanese title for the film is a uh, Kimi no Nawa. I think if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think um, you did great. Yeah. I really we- teed you up so I wouldn't have to pronounce <laughs> it. So I'm really happy. There's my there's it. my two years of high school Japanese paying off. But in English, of course, it, it translates to your name with a period at the end. Yeah. Something about the period gives it gravitas. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. So at any rate, your name actually for one of the best known, you know, Japanese animated films premiered in Los Angeles in 2016 at Anime Expo and then theatrically in August in Japan. Yeah. I found it interesting that they released it in America before it was released in Japan. But it worked out really well. I mean, it was later released in 92 countries and then made a lot of money. North of 380 million, I think, worldwide to date. And if you believe the charts of Japanese film earnings that you can find online, and from what I understand, they're not the most accurate things in the world. But if you can believe them, it is the third highest grossing Japanese film of all time. That's not the third highest grossing Japanese animated film. That is the third highest grossing Japanese film. It had like the second largest ever domestic gross behind Spirited Away. Miyazaki Spirited Uh, Away, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And just broke a bunch of records, just topping the box office for what was it, 12 non-consecutive weekends? And stayed there for nine, I think, at number one. Nine consecutive. So it was 12 non-consecutive weekends. It was at the top and nine of them were in a row. If you can get nine number one weekends on anything, that's a coup d'etat, you know? I'll take it. Yeah, right? (laughs) It's the first time that an anime not directed by Miyazaki earned more than $100 million at Japanese box office. It's like Makoto Shinkai was such a breakout hit in this film to bring himself onto the scene as another Japanese anime anime director when Miyazaki is the premier one. Miyazaki, God, if you look it up, it's the same picture. It did win some awards. Ended up, I think, in the year it was released, winning the LA Film Critics Association Award for Best Animated Feature. Mm-hmm. Nominated, I want to say, for an Oscar. I don't know that it won, but I and I'm maybe even lying about that, but it feels like it should have been if it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I believe you. And as we <laughs> mentioned, uh, directed and written by uh, Makoto Shinkai, who is known for a, a number of films, like Five Centimeters Per Second from 07, uh, Weathering With You in, in 2019, and uh, the most recent Suzume in 20. 20- 2022. He has running themes throughout his movies, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to see him try and like tackle them with slightly different perspectives. But yeah, all I'll say is that his movies tend to deal with catastrophism and just like natural disasters and, right. you know, like nature and humanity combined. How can we look at that in sort of a hopeful way? The whole story kind of was based around some sketches that Makoto Shinkai had made after in, I think it was summer of 2011, he had visited Miyagi Prefecture in Japan. And this was after the Great East Japanese Earthquake. And the Mm -hmm. story spun out of that experience to a degree. Visiting a site like that has to impact you in a way where it leaves you asking some of those big questions. And I think this movie does like a really good job of not holding back from dealing with the tragedy of natural disaster, but still looking at it in a hopeful way. We're teasing a couple of things. We're not spelling them out too much, but we will talk about them a bit more in depth. But to sort of round out what we're talking about here behind the scenes, this movie was produced by Comix Wave Films, who 
basically produces mostly Makoto Shinkai pictures. It has a cast for the Japanese version, mm -hmm. which features in uh, the male lead role, Ryonosuke Kamiki, who was in Spirited Away in 01, in Summer Wars in 09, and so many other ones that he has a nickname in Japan as the 100 billion yen man because he's been in the top seven of the top 10 highest grossing Japanese films of all time. When you want to make money on anime, you call that dude. We just talked about being in the top nine of something, but like being in the top seven of the top 10, like it's not even you're in seven of the top 10. His co-star is Mone Kamashiraishi, who was in Weathering With You and also some other movies like Wolf Children from 2012. So a great Japanese cast in the lead and lots of wonderful supporting parts. I'm going to mention the American cast, but I'm curious, when you watched this movie, both the first time and this time around, did you watch the Japanese language version or did you watch the English dub? Oh, I watched the Japanese language version. Mm -hmm. uh, your girl likes the subtitles. I like sort of experiencing the film in, I guess, the language it was made, but nothing against it. I've heard that the American stars did like a great job with it. What did you watch? I ended up watching the English dub, partially because it was the only one I could find when I was looking for it. And so I thought, ah, why not? And just to see the difference, because I'm like you, if I can watch it in the original language and watch it with subtitles, that's what I prefer to do. But this time around, I thought, ah, let's try the English translation and surprisingly good, surprisingly yeah. good. And that cast who covers those two main parts, the American mm -hmm. stars. So the the male lead is Michael Center Nicholas, who you might know from the Venture Brothers, and he was part of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle series. Mm -hmm. And then Stephanie Shea, who was in the Naruto Shippuden movie and Bleach series, among other things. And Stephanie Shea also is credited as the casting director for the American oh. cast. She was like, I'm going to cast me. <laughs> She's like, you know who would be perfect for this role? She like looks in the mirror like, you've got the part. You know? I've, I've got a short list. Let me just pitch this person at you. It's me. But also, you said she did a great job. So like, honestly, maybe she's just a great casting director. She's like, I honestly am the best person for this part. Also, Josh, this does tell me that you do not have a Crunchyroll account, which makes sense. Like, the Crunchyroll uh, got a lot of anime on it. And that's where the Japanese version of the movie was. Was, and I'm like, oh, yeah, like most people wouldn't be able to find that. That's good to know. Note to self. <laughs> but yes. And then animation supervision was I'm going to do my best on this one. Masashi Ando, who was also the supervising animator on Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away and Paprika. Like what a resume. I know all three of those names. So those must have been big. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about getting the 10 billion yen man and the lead or supervising yeah. animator from Spirited Away. And like they they really stacked the deck with this one. They're really you know. set up for success. It is true. And I think that extends to my favorite bit of credits here, which is the music. In this film, music plays such a huge role in setting mood and time period mm -hmm. and really emotionally drawing you into everything. And mm -hmm. the music in this film was done by a Japanese, would you call him a pop band named Radwimps? which is a phenomenal name for a band. That's the name that anybody should name anything. Radwimps, they said, by the way, meant to have this dichotomy meaning to mean something that is similar to either excellent weakling or superlative coward. As someone who's like kind of an anxious person, I am now going to internally be like, you are a superlative coward. <laughs> talk about like positive self-talk. You go, Radwimps. I'm going to like see if they have t-shirts or something. Forget the Crunchyroll right? account. I want a Radwimps t-shirt. Let me just cross it off the list for, for Josh's much. Christmas list. Thank you very much. <laughs>
we'll round this out with what I've been doing every episode, which is trying to give some special love to someone far, far down in the credits who doesn't normally get mentioned on podcasts like this or, or shows about movies. There were a lot of people in this role in this movie, so I'm just choosing one at random. But I want to give some love to what is called, and you can tell me exactly what is meant here, Miyuki Nakagawa, who was one of the in-between animators. Oh, Josh, that's lovely. Shouting out the in-betweeners. Play, uh, for those of us who don't work in the biz, tell us what an in-betweener is. So if you're doing 2D animation or, or hand-drawn animation, sometimes you have a lead animator who's in charge of particular characters, but they will draw what's called the key poses of a character, and they will have the main expression and then outlines the skeleton of the animation, and then they will usually hand it off to in-between those, to draw the frames in-between, to smooth out the animation and to take the poses that were drawn out and draw the things that need to go from one pose to the other. We should always shout out the in-betweeners. They are doing the hard, hard work of making animation look smooth and effortless, and it's tough. It's not effortless at all. They're very good at what they do. Well, thank you, Miyuki Nakagawa. Thank you to all of your team and the rest of the people who are doing the same job as you on the film. So should we get to talking about the thing itself? Let's get into it. Let's do it when we talk about our feature presentation. We are talking about our feature presentation, and in this episode, that is Your Name, the Japanese animated film from 2016. As always, there are spoilers here. If you have not seen this movie, please go see it. It'll make a whole lot more sense, A, and B, we don't want to spoil anything for you. If you insist on going forward from here, that is your fault, not ours. The beginning of this movie, Mary, starts beautifully and dramatically with a meteorite plunging to Earth over what we very quickly see is the city of Tokyo. It looks like the Northern Lights. It is both beautiful and terrifying in its power, but just lights up the sky. And as you see that above Tokyo, you have these two young adults who are waking up and going into work. And a woman in voiceover, Mitsuha, who in the Japanese version, Mone Kamishiraishi, and Stephanie Shise in the English version, she says some mornings she wakes up crying and she doesn't know why. And there is kind of what it seems to be her counterpart, and about her age, guy named Taki, who is the Ryosuke Komiki character played by Michael Centerclass in the English translation, who echoes and adds to this thought that Mitsuha is having. Taki says that whatever dream he has been having, he can't seem to remember. And both of them are experiencing this feeling of, is it loss? Is it ennui? Is it, it's just some sort of longing that neither of them can find an answer to, but seem to be consumed by. And the movie really parallels it very well, where you're just like, oh, mate, are you missing each other? You know, like, ooh. But yeah. like, without giving anything away, it takes you back to when that feeling started, and it's the day that like the star fell from the sky. Right. The star, like you said, is very northern lightsy. It's beautiful. It's falling across the sky and seems to have maybe not just a single star, but maybe multiple parts to it mm -hmm. that are coming to Earth. And so that's the thing that we get as our first introduction to this meteorite, which we'll get a bit more in a while. So we but, come out of this moment with both of them in a, you know, like we said, an ennui state talking about loss. 
there is a phone alarm that is ringing that kind of gets us out of this mode. And there seems to be Mitsuha dreaming and calling for Taki. And there is Mm -hmm. a flashback sequence, very almost like a slow motion flashback sequence in a subway where she is telling her name to Taki and there is a red ribbon in her hair and she's taking off the red ribbon and kind of maybe tossing it back at him and saying, my name is Mitsuha. And that's this bit of a dream that we get before she pops awake. It's interesting the way that this film kind of already starts out by twisting time. You start out with like, oh, this is the day that we, you know, since then we've always been feeling this way, but like now we're adults, but also here's this, you know, flashback of her tossing him this ribbon. It's also, Josh, man, there's some great symbolism. Thematically, you'll see in a lot of certain Japanese animation and maybe honestly in other cultures, I'm not really sure. There's this theme of like the red thread of fate. Mm. And so when you are looking at this red ribbon that connects these two people, an educated watcher could be like, oh, these two people are connected by like this red string of fate. When she wakes up, what gets me is the amount of surprise she has that she's awakened there. And she also just starts feeling her chest. You know, she's feeling her boobs and she's like, oh, they're so realistic. (laughs) Uh, And her younger sister, Yotsuha, played in the Japanese version by Kanon Tani and the English version by Katie Harvey, opens the door and is just like, I love Yotsuha. She's so direct. She's just like, it's breakfast time. And then Stop what you're doing. She's like, why are you doing this? And we don't really get an understanding at this point of why she's so surprised about being there and why the feeling up of oneself and why Yotsuha is discovering her doing this. It is a funny moment that we might get a bit of repeat on in different ways coming up. So a a bit of planting Mm -hmm. there. But it ends with her being called to breakfast and standing up, looking at herself in the mirror and kind of having a bit of a freak out. You kind of have this sort of implication of she is not used to this body. Uh, And, you know, at breakfast, her grandma, Hitoha, in the Japanese version, Etsuko Ishihara, in the English version, Glynis Bell, Hitoha (laughs) and Yotsuha say that Mitsuha is, oh, you're back to normal. And they're like, you were crazy yesterday. Yeah, and that is another one of those bits that is going to make a reappearance of you were not yourself yesterday, which uh, Mitsuha does not really understand why they're saying that. I'm just going to break it down just a little bit. You can tell me if I'm being too spoilery. Now do it. But like what they've done here is like we have been switching linear storytelling like several times already and the first time you watch this movie it is a little confusing up front because not only is this a time twisting movie it's got like a body swap aspect so the morning that we're seeing where she's freaking out is actually not the same morning that she's going to breakfast even though her sister calls her to breakfast oh i didn't pick that up (laughs) mitsuha and taki are swapping bodies i'm just gonna explain it to you guys great they're swapping bodies so when she wakes up It's him and her body. He like feels her boobs because he's just was a weird dream. I'm a girl. This feels so realistic. And then he like stands up and undresses in front of the mirror. It's like, oh, my God. It's like, I'm actually a girl. And then when she comes to breakfast, it's the next day and she's back in her body. And Yotsuha and her grandma are saying, you were crazy yesterday because that was when Taki was in her body. So her sister calls her to breakfast. But when she comes to breakfast, it's herself the next day. 
and everyone is reacting to what Taki did in her body yesterday. See, I think this is good. I think we're going to have to spoil a little bit up front for this to make any sense whatsoever, Mm -hmm. because there are so many twists in this. And so if you want a simplified way, I think, of thinking about what this film is, it's Freaky Friday. There's some sort of body swap, which we don't understand that yet. That is interesting, and we will talk about the whys and hows. And the time-jumping is part of this whole body swap aspect of things. So thank you for clarifying that for me because I had no idea. In addition to time twisting, we are also body swapping. You have to really be like dialed in as an audience and or just watch it several times like me and maybe Google what people say about it. And then it reveals more and more information. All that to say, Yotsuha is like ticked off that it was Mitsuha's morning to cook breakfast and she had to do it. (laughs) She's just like, yeah, you were crazy yesterday and you didn't get up and make breakfast. This is another plant that you didn't get up and make breakfast is going to come back around in a while in interesting ways. So there's lots of these little threads that get planted kind of early on that will come back and make an appearance later. So this is another one of those. Mm -hmm. As they're hanging out at breakfast and talking and trying to sort out who was weird yesterday and who was supposed to make breakfast, there are a few little bits of information that kind of fly by us and we'll see some significance to them here pretty shortly. But there's the loud town speakers in this town that they're in is called Itomori. Uh, Not a real Japanese town, but based on a real Japanese town. But the, Mm -hmm. the town speakers for Itomori are saying, hey, there's a mayoral election coming up. Isn't that great? Everybody make sure you vote, which, okay, Okay, thanks for the information in the background. And also on the TV news that's playing while they're eating breakfast, there is the report that a comet is coming. So this is obviously pre that scene that we have seen at the beginning. Here's the thing where the movie is setting up a bunch of things that you're going to need to know later. You know, Itamori seems to be a little bit rural. They talk about that more later, but it does have this town wide announcement system in part, probably because it's a little bit more of a rural town. And in case of, you know, anything, Mitsuha is tying up her hair. She ties it up with a red ribbon. Remember that. And she goes to school and on the way to school, she meets up with her two friends, a girl, Sayaka. Also, they call her Saya sometimes. In the Japanese version, she's Aoi uh, Yuki. And in English, she's done by Cassandra Lee. Her voice is done by. And a boy, Katsuhiko Teshigawara, also just known as Teshi, who is Ryo Narita. And in the English version, Kyle Hebert. I thought it was Herbert. I almost read it Herbert. (laughs) Sorry, Kyle. These seem to be her best buds. Mm -hmm. They're the people that she walks to school with. And you can tell that because Saya is saying, hey, Mitsuha, I like what you've done with your hair. And, you know, Teshi is asking about Mitsuha's grandmother. And you get from Teshi in asking about the grandmother that he is a little bit into the occult and other interesting things like that, because he's asking about, you know, did his grandma cast out your demons recently? But they're just a couple of nice kids. There's a couple of things about that, too, with the whole body swap and things when everyone's like, you were crazy yesterday. So Sayaka is like, oh, your hair because she's like, yesterday, you didn't do your hair. Your hair was crazy. And Tashi's like, did your grandma exercise you Uh or something? Her friends are also just like, you were weird yesterday. And Mitsuha's like, what are you talking about? You know, like, it's just another layer of she wasn't just weird at home. She went to school and (laughs) everybody thought she was weird. And while they're having this conversation and walking down the road towards the school, remember we heard the Itamori loudspeakers talking about a mayoral election. Well, we pass by a roadside candidate making a speech by, you know, a van with the loudspeakers and everything. And so this is a candidate whose name is Toshiki, who in the Japanese version is played by Masaki Terasoma, in English by Scott Williams. And it turns out that this candidate talking on the mic to everyone about why he should be reelected 
is Mitsuha's father. And you get a really interesting picture of their relationship. Everybody around her father is like, oh, like I hear he's really been passing out the bribes, you know, passing out the bacon. And then he like stops his speech and yells at Mitsuha, stand up straight. Mitsuha is, I think, rightfully embarrassed and very upset about this. Like he like publicly yells at her that she has bad posture. (laughs) Yeah, I would be upset about that if in front of my friends in high school, my parents were calling out my posture. Yeah, also like in the middle of a campaign speech, he's like, elect me as mayor. Mitsuha, your posture is (laughs) horrible. Mitsuha feels like kind of an underdog, right? So she goes to school. Yes. She goes to class. It's some sort of vocabulary class. She's opening up her notebook and she's got like something written inside. What's inside there, Josh? What does it say? Well, written across one of the pages in the notebook in Japanese is the words, who are you? Which in this instance, we don't know, has she written that? Has someone else written that? But it's something that she finds in her book. And it is found at roughly the same time that the teacher of this class is giving a lesson on Twilight. And Mm -hmm. it's an interesting description of Twilight and kind of the importance of it to culture or what it means in literature. I don't remember, but it's something about... Oh, I got you, Oh, you got me. It's something about Twilight, and that seems important that we're getting that information. The movie is giving you something here that you got to pay attention to because it comes up again later. The phrase that they're talking about is the origin of who are you, but it's tasokare doki. It's the word twilight. In the South, there's the concept of you don't know who you're going to meet at the crossroads, Mm -hmm. right? Like the crossroads as this like spiritual place. This is kind of the same thing, but it's for twilight. It's like a time of day when day turns to night when the barriers of what is real are like kind of thin and you may not be able to see someone's face, you're not sure who you're meeting. So they're like explaining that the concept of twilight is connected to asking, who are you? Because maybe at dusk, you will not be able to discern someone's face. Likening that to a crossroads really makes some sense. Yeah, it's the best metaphor I could take from my own kind of like (sighs) Southern mythology. Be careful of the people at the crossroads. But in this one, it's not necessarily be careful as much as it's just like, who knows at dusk who you're meeting. There's a conversation that happens after this class between Mitsuha and Saya and Teshi where they are talking again about how weird uh, maybe Mitsuha was yesterday, Saya saying she didn't have her ribbon on like she normally does. And Mitsuha saying, well, you know, I've been having these dreams about somebody else's life. Oh, boy, this is Teshi's backyard. You know, he's into the occult and the rest and says, oh, maybe this is memories from her previous life or some connection to the multiverse, which I love Teshi mm-hmm. to death. And her friends are just they're so sweet. Saya's just like, I think, is this like stress? Because you guys are doing that upcoming ritual, right? By the way, they're doing a ritual upcoming. That's going to come back, too. And then Mitsuha is just like, she's like, I'm sick of this town. I am so ready to graduate. She doesn't like everybody's eyes being on her. And she hates being in this rural area. She just wants to move to Tokyo. I can relate. I grew up in a small town and went, hey, wouldn't a big city be great? And I think Saya sort of commiserates with her, shares, you know, a bit of that with her a little bit. But Teshi is having none of it. Teshi seems a little annoyed that he's got these two people talking about how bad this town is and says, you know what, let's stop talking about how bad the town is and let's just all go to a cafe. And part of the joke there, I think, is as they're wandering through the town while they're having this conversation about how small and rural and nothing in it going on, they're talking about, you know, we only have 
like one store and one mm-hmm. this and whatever. We seem to have two bars for some reason. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I love thought that. Was great. The, we don't even have like a dentist, but for some reason there's two pubs and they're right next door to each other. And then they just like keep going. And I love that. I'm just like, that's so real. Just in any sort of outskirts place, you're just like, yeah, for some reason there's two bars. When no. Teshi says to them after having this conversation about here's what's in town and here's not what's in town, suggests that they should go to a cafe. This is exciting to both of the girls because they don't have a cafe. (laughs) There's this wide-eyed, let's go to the cafe, which turns out to be the bench next to the vending machine where they sell the coffee. Mitsuha had to leave, so it's just Teshi and Saya, Mm. and she's just like, what are you going to do after high school? And he, you know, doesn't hold the same grudge against Istomori that they do. He's like, I'll probably just stay here. I'll probably just, like, live a normal life in my hometown. Yeah, and you get, at least I did, you get early on a sense that Teshi and Saya, they're friends, certainly, but there's the potential for something there between them if there isn't something there already. Who's to say? Maybe they've got a little chemistry. We leave Teshi and Sai alone to work that out. Where Mitsuha is, is at home. And she is back at the house. Grandma and Yotsuha are there with Mitsuha, and they are doing uh, what seems to be an activity important to the family, weaving, and or learning to weave, I guess, in, in Yotsuha's case. And grandma is explaining the significance of them doing that. They are making these like braided woven cords. And grandma is saying that this is uh, something that is passed down. But 200 years ago, there was this big fire in town that destroyed all the old documents. And they don't really know what exactly the meaning of the weaving is or of their festivals. But it is a tradition and it should continue. And she's going to teach it to them anyway. And this is another thing, you know, she's like, yeah, when you're weaving, it's all about the emotions between you and the thread. This is thousands of years old, but 200 years ago, we lost the meaning of it. You know, you can kind of pay a little attention to the numbers here and just on the TV, they're like, wow, this comet, Comet Tiamat is coming. It has a 1200 year cycle. And when they're weaving, the grandmother's like, there's a thousand years of history, but 200 years ago when it burned down, we don't have the meaning anymore. thousand, two hundred, twelve hundred, twelve hundred 1200, 1200 year cycle of the comet, it's all connected. Hituha is not happy with her son-in-law Toshiki, you remember the mayoral candidate, and how he had left the priesthood to go into politics. You notice that he doesn't live with them, that the girls live with their grandmother and she only ran into her dad in town and there is bad blood there. So like they're sort of establishing these relationships in a space where it's like, yeah, your dad used to help us with all of these holy priestly kind of duties, but now he's in politics and he's a completely different person. Yeah. And you don't see Um, their mother either. Talking about him going into politics, we immediately cut to him being particularly political. The dad, Toshiki, is schmoozing with Teshi's father, who runs, I think, a construction company. Company. Yes. Um, in the Japanese version, he is played by Chafurin. C-H-A-F-U with a little carrot on it, R-I-N, Chafurin, which I think is a stage name for a particular actor over there. English, it's Tyler Bunch, yeah. which I'm sure I'm saying correctly. But here's <laughs> the thing, Josh. I never know how to do the U's with the carrots. I don't do either. you know how to no. pronounce it? Okay. No idea. All right. He plays Teshi's father, who works with construction. And it's pretty clear that he's like, support my campaign. Let me pour you more sake. And you're kind of wondering if the rumors from the townspeople that he's bribing people or laying it on really thick. You're like, is her father a bad guy? I don't know. And watching all of this go down is Teshi kind of sitting in the back with his mother and while his mother's, you know, getting a few more bottles together to send out to the table. And Teshi is watching what his father is doing in relationship to 
Mitsuha's father, but then also kind of staring out the window towards Saya's house. And you get this sense of an internal conflict of his about the situation that he's in as well, even if he can't be as longing for escape, I guess, as the girls are. It's interesting to have the one person who's like, I maybe I'll probably just stay in town. And then you kind of see his home life and you're like, oh, yeah, you also have conflicts with how things run here. It's a cool way to show that Teshi maybe like also doesn't agree with how the adults are handling things. Yeah. So he does leave. His dad is like, I want you to work on the construction site. And he's like, okay, fine. But he leaves to go hang out with Saya and together they go to the temple and watch Mitsuha performing a very interesting ceremony. And this was the ceremony that was mentioned earlier in the film Mm -hmm. about how you're probably stressed about the upcoming ceremony and that's why you were acting weird. Well, this is the ceremony. And Mm -hmm. the ceremony involves a sacred act that seems a little odd from the outside. Mitsuha and her sister, they are very formally dressed and they are chewing. I don't know that I caught what they were chewing. It's rice. It's rice. Okay. They're chewing rice and they end up spitting out the rice into a small container, into a small vessel that will then help to start the fermentation for the sake that is inside of it. Did I get that one right? Exactly. It's sort of like they do a shrine maiden dance, these like beautiful bells and so on. And then they are performing this ritual and like make this sake. I think it's kujikami sake is what they call it. Mm-hmm. It's basically translating it as like mouth chewed sake, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. essentially. They're doing using this ancient process where you chew it, spit it out, and then it ferments into sake. But it is for holy purposes. It seems like a thing that maybe she wants to do it, but certainly she has to do it as part of the mm-hmm. family and has to do it publicly. And you're in front of your friends or people who are at least are your classmates and you're having to do something especially something that is, it's more traditional, the spitting of the rice into the sake, maybe not something that everybody does or everybody sees all the time. And so you stick out. There was a period of time, because I went to private Christian school and I was much younger than Mitsuha, but there was a period of time that like, because my name was Mary, I kept having to play Mary in the Christmas play. (laughs) And eventually I was kind of like, hey, I don't want to do this. I feel like it's because I'm named Mary and I really would just prefer, like, it feels like everyone's like looking at me and they're just like, oh, like Mary, mother of God, you know, like it's that like little embarrassing time where normally I wouldn't even mind, but I feel perceived, you know? (laughs) Can I just be a shepherd for one season, please? Yeah, that's kind of where she's at. She's like, why do I have to do this? It's so embarrassing. Yotoha gives voice to Mitsuha's desire to get out of this town and specifically to move to Tokyo. Mitsuha is still embarrassed and she like runs down the stairs and she screams to the sky another thing you gotta pay attention I hate it here please make me a handsome Tokyo boy in my next life cut to watch out what you ask for phone alarm rings Taki is the one waking up this time and he seems pretty confused he does so this is an echo of when we saw Mitsuha wake up and be surprised at being in this place well this is Taki's turn so Taki is waking up not in a a rural area, but in what seems to be a city apartment, we are assuming in Tokyo. Kind of like where Mitsuha woke up and felt her chest, this Taki wakes up and touches between his legs and gets surprised at what is there. Okay, so here's the thing, Josh. The first time I watched this movie, I was like, this is kind of gross. But now I'm like, this is the part of body swapping that no one talks about. Sure. It's like the physicality of being in someone's body. And I think that they do a great job when, spoiler alert, when Mitsuha wakes up as Taki, she like rolls out of bed and then looks down. And I don't know if they did this in the English translation, but in the Japanese translation, 
translation. She like looks down at her shorts and goes, there's something there. Uh-huh. Like She's like scared of it. This movie, I think, unlike some others that I have seen, both live action and animated, walks this really interesting line mm-hmm. on talking, not even really talking about, but just ma- making you feel and understand through the characters' reactions about A, discovering your body, B, discovering other people's bodies. C, uh, not feeling at home in your own body. Yeah. It's like a real subplot of that, for sure. It is. And maybe even D, the comfortableness of people or discomfort of other people around you in a body that does or does not feel like it's the one you should have. The animators take a lot of classic tropes about how anime animates like femininity and animates the gestures and the body language. And they animate Taki with that body language when it's Mitsuha in Taki's body. It has the awkward embarrassment of that age and that time where you're talking about like that uncomfortability. And then it is kind of like very subtly just like you're a girl in a boy's body. Like, what does that look like? Like, are we talking about gender here or is it, you know, like more about the body swap? I think it kind of is going to be who's watching it and what they take away from it. Towards the end of this like scene where she's waking up as Taki and he's got like a bandage on his face and she's just like, ah, like what happened here? The thing about it, though, is like towards the end of the scene, She's, oh, no, I have to go to the bathroom. And it's like this moment where you always make jokes about how nobody ever has to go to the bathroom in the movies. But they just like unflinchingly are just like, oh, yeah, you are a high school girl who woke up in a high school boy's body who's terrified by that. And now you're just like, oh, no, I have to go to the bathroom. And this is just a bodily function that I have to confront. There is another one of those echo moments that happens here whenever Taki gets up and goes in to talk to his father or Mitsuha as Taki gets up to talk to the father. This may be another one of those next morning things like it was with Mm -hmm. with Mitsuha where Taki comes in and the dad says, you know, it was your turn to cook breakfast. Right. The parallels. But it's also just like you get the sense too, playing into the body swap. Neither of them are used to the other one's schedule. The dad heads to work. Tsukasa texts Taki, and uh, that in the Japanese version is Nobunaga Shimazaki, and English version Ben Pronsky. And it's just like, you're late for school. And Mitsuha and Taki's body is like, where's school? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and has to find the way to school through this maze of Tokyo, which, by the way, steps out the front door, looks at the Tokyo skyline, and is like, holy cow, this is what I've always dreamed of. And Mm -hmm. and ends up getting to walk to school and somehow figuring out where it is in the midst of this giant city. I would have just stayed home, honestly, that day. (laughs) I would not have gone to school, but... Even though she kind of thinks she's dreaming, she goes there and she gets to Jingu High School. Which is an uh, all like an all boys school, looks like. And is found by Sukasa and another boy. And, you know, of course, it's Mitsuha. So Mitsuha is just like, oh, you're Sukasa. And there's a lot of this forgetfulness that shows up, right? So it's uh, Taki saying, I got lost on the way to school. And the friend's going, How? But give the gift to Mitsuha as Taki by inviting Taki to a cafe later, and Mitsuha couldn't be more thrilled. There's a moment when they're at lunch, Taki saying, I forgot my lunch. And in the Japanese version, and I had to talk to my roommate who's like learning Japanese, but Taki uses the feminine pronoun because it's Mitsuha. So Mm. she starts to say, I forgot my lunch. Watashi, it's used primarily, it's gender neutral, but it's used more by women. It's more respectful if you like don't know a person. And their friends are just like, why on earth is Taki using this word? 
third uh-huh. that's more formal. And so in that moment, she tries out several different pronouns until they're like, yes, because she's Watashi. And they're like, what? And then she's like, Watakshi, which is more polite, more humble. And then she tries Boku, which is men like when talking to strangers can use Boku or like young boys will use it. And then eventually settles on this word Ore, which is more like young man kind of macho-y with their friends uh-huh. kind of thing. She is not used to speaking in a masculine way. And there's this moment where the friends are such good friends that they are just like, that's wrong. That's wrong. There you go. Taki's <laughs> being really weird today. You know? Of course, you know, Mitsuha's only dream is to go to a cafe. So she gets there and she's just like, Tokyo's so expensive, but it's a dream and just buys like this beautiful set of pancakes and uh-huh. takes picture of it and is living her best life. This is everything that she dreamed it could be. She's assuming it is a dream, so spends whatever money it takes to get whatever it is, which is great. In the midst of everything, though, while having the lovely pancakes, she ends up getting a text saying that she, he, is late for work, and that's not good, but it's doubly not good because she has to ask the friends, where do I work again? We get from Mito's perspective, everyone reacting to how weird she was. And then we kind of follow her into Taki's body and see someone who just has to act weird because they genuinely have no information. And so it's like a cool thing to do with sort of the time twister of like, oh, yeah, it makes sense that everyone around you was like you were acting crazy yesterday because you have to ask where you work. You got lost on the way to school, et cetera, et cetera. And where Taki works that Mitsuha now has to go and find is this Italian restaurant where Taki is a server. And what Mitsuha does not understand going into this is that serving can be a really exhausting, overwhelming job. And that is exactly what seems to happen as she steps into this role that she's never been in before. They show her like rightfully like bringing food to the wrong table and just panicking. And I'm just like, this is like my nightmare. The customer is always right. That's the thing. And you got to take care of them. And this comes into play with her being a server here at the Italian restaurant because there is an obnoxious customer who plants a toothpick in his pizza and says, oh, look what I found in my pizza and tries to get a free meal. Mitsuha, as Taki, doesn't really get how to handle that situation and kind of calls the dude out about it. The situation is quickly fixed or it's taken over from Taki by this older female server who goes by Okudera, last name Okudera, it's Miki Okudera, played by Masami Nakasawa and uh, Laura Post in the English version. And she does the job of apologizing to the customer and giving the free meal that this dude obviously didn't deserve. God, I love this moment, too, because it's so genuine. Mitsuha is just doing her best and she's just like, there are no toothpicks at Italian restaurants. And uh-huh. And then immediately, like, Okudera has to come over and be like, I'm so sorry, your meal is free. And so later, Mitsuha, you know, Taki, tries to talk to her about it. But Okudera's like, yeah, it's probably a scam, right? But, like, we don't have the authority to, like, do anything about it. And this guy, who's total lowlife, has sort of like a box cutter we see in the scene. And it turns out he has slashed her skirt. And it's really embarrassing. So Mitsuha, as Taki, just like grabs her and takes her to the back office and is like, I'm going to fix your skirt. What? Like, you know, this is very unusual behavior for Taki. But of course, it's Mitsuha. And doesn't just fix her skirt 
fixes it and also embroiders some beautiful design on it in the process of doing so and really brings out the Mitsuha in this, you know, Taki Mitsuha situation. And it's something that really feels like a niceness and something that resonates with Okadera. Like it's a little hedgehog and flowers, you know, something really cute. And Okadera is just like, I never knew you had a feminine side. You know, previously you were always <laughs> in the Japanese version, it translates to you're weak, but you pick fights or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, man, what a thing to hear from an older woman as a high school boy. Yeah, you're not strong, but you're too angry and you always get into fights anyway. That kind of explains the bandage on his face. There's something has happened where he got into an altercation and she's just like, yeah, that's who you are. And Mitsuha's like, oh, this is like new information for me. That's why my face hurts. Okay, cool. In this dream, I guess this guy picks fights. So after all of this has gone down, we get back to Taki's place and Mitsuha as Taki is looking through the diary in Taki's phone Mm -hmm. and finds pictures of Okadera, which maybe seems to imply that the real Taki has some interest in her. I feel like this is smart of Mitsuha. Like we get to see her kind of like looking into Taki's phone as like a source of information about Taki. And she finds out that he has like an app where he he keeps like a diary or a journal. And so she's like, okay, I'm just going to add my own journal entry and just adds walked Okadera to the station because of my feminine powers. And I was like, that's so cute, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And in Taki's journal is, this same phrase that Mitsuha had had in her notebook, who are you? And Mitsuha takes the opportunity to really answer that question and writes on Taki's hand her name. Mitsuha writes the characters for her name. There's some foreshadowing here. The whole like writing in pen on the hand of the name comes up again later on in the movie, but I'm not going to say it now. I'm going to keep going instead. You know what this feels like a little bit to me? Earlier in this season, we covered the movie Memento, mm, which mm-hmm. was back in, I can't remember, it was late 90s, early 2000s. And there was some discussion, I believe, in that episode about talk of remaking Memento in this day and time. And I, mm. it just seems almost impossible because it was such a movie of its time and it played with Polaroids and it played with, you know, mm-hmm. not having cell phones and, yeah. and all of that. And this feels a bit like a way that that actually would work or could work in the present day as a means of sourcing information in the digital age. Because at this stage, they both think it's some sort of like weird dream. They don't really know what's going on. But to have the presence of mind to be like, oh, I can learn a lot about someone by what's on their phone. And this visual storytelling in this film of even just having pictures of Okudera on the phone, you're just like, oh, he's definitely got a crush on her. But, you know, we don't have to like have him be like, oh, no, I have a crush on Okudera. It's just everybody knows if you got pictures of this person on your phone and then you keep a journal, like there's all these things that you're like, building about Taki. And I'm like, yeah, man, like now if I ever body swap, first thing I'm going to do is search their phone. It's a great idea. The next morning after all of this has gone down, Taki wakes up as himself and immediately sees this writing on his hand with the name Mitsuha. Mitsuha means nothing to him and gets looking into his journal on the phone and sees the entry about walking Okadera to the station because of his quote unquote feminine powers, which is a little freak out moment for Taki, whether it's the feminine powers part or whether it's the fact that he actually went somewhere with Okadera or both. Probably, honestly, the going somewhere with Okadera. It's interesting to me, too, as a person that this is actually the first time we are getting Taki's perspective in the film. And we're like a little ways in the film. 
but we've gotten sort of the echoes of Taki and Mitsuha's body. And this is the first time we're just like seeing him going through his day. So he goes to school and he's like, oh, I got to get to work. And his friends are like, oh, you remember where work is? And it's like an echo of what happened with Mitsuha where they're like, oh, you remember where your locker is? You you know, like right. it's the same. Like he's experiencing those effects of Mitsuha in his body. Well, he goes to work. Mm-hmm. He obviously knows where he works now. He gets to work and instead of being able to start his shift is immediately accosted by the other male staff members. And they're like, dude, you left here with Okadera? Like, what about the bro code? (laughs) Didn't we all agree (laughs) that we weren't going to do that? It's clear that everyone at this restaurant has a crush on Okadera, and they're just like, what do you think, you're better than us? Uh And then she comes and, like, throws kindling onto this fire, and she just, like, comes to work and, like, winks at him, and everybody's just, we (laughs) are so jealous of you. How dare you? Oh, man. Um, He stepped out of line. He stepped out of line. There's something here I want to just shout out real fast. Since this is the first time we are seeing Taki in Taki's body, there's a detail here that you're going to notice on watch through. He has a red bracelet on. And when Mitsuha was him, didn't have that, you know, but he has this sort of wrapped around his wrist red bracelet and that will come back later. It sure will. I'm trying so hard. I just want to tell them everything. I know. (laughs) It's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. And I think I may have said this in previous episodes, but what was I thinking when I chose Time Twisters as a topic for a season? It's almost impossible to describe movies like this in a way that makes any sense. So hopefully, hopefully we're making sense up to this point. But yes, the bracelet on the wrist, that could be important. Please pay attention. Mm. All right, let's jump again. Let's jump locations again. So we're going to jump out of the Italian restaurant in Tokyo, We are going to jump back to the provincial town of Itomori, and whereas Taki had woken up in his own body, Mitsuha is waking up in her own. And similarly to what Taki had done and looks at her arm, and on her arm is written her name, Mitsuha, and who are you, what are you? So there is a communication that has been started in writing on one another's arms between these two people who understand that there is some sort of connection but don't understand who the other person is or why it's there. We're kind of almost like kicking off a montage of their experiences here. She, you know, wakes up with this on her arm. She goes to school again. Everyone's staring at her again. And then we kind of swap back to maybe why they're staring at her And it's interesting now that we've had Saya, her friend, has commented on her hair before. We are able to distinguish that Mitsuha with her hair in a braid and the red cord is herself in her own body. But if she doesn't have that hairstyle, it's Taki. So it flashes back to a few kids in art class talking about her father getting kickbacks. And it's Taki in her body. And, you know, he's quick to pick a fight. So as Mitsuha, he kicks over a desk. He's just like, they're talking about me, aren't they? Okay. And then he's like, basically, he's going to be quick to pick a fight for Mitsuha, even Uh though that's not her personality at all. Also, briefly, you have to notice Taki, you've seen he has sketches that he's done. You kind of see that in his room. In art class, he's doing a very detailed sort of landscape with architecture. And that'll also come back later. Even though he's in Mitsuha's body, he's drawing a very beautiful drawing. So at any rate, her friends are like telling her about what she did the day before. She's kicking over her desk. She's like, what? I did what? And she, you know, rushes home, finds a note in her notebook, which is like, what is this life? (laughs) (laughs) It is this moment of realization that is 
or I guess a picture that maybe is coming together for both of them through the voices of their friends and the people around them about how they've been acting when they have not been themselves. So Taki has scribbled in her notebook, what is this life? And he is, you know, back in Tokyo as himself is going through all of his calendar notes and looking at all of these actions that supposedly he has taken that he does not remember. And it is kind of at that moment, even though all of us as an audience have known really what is going on, they're Freaky friday mm. that they get clarity that that is what is happening, I think. It's not a dream. They're it's switching not a dream. bodies. And it is not going to get easier from here. It is going to get harder from here. And whether they know that or not, I think we can be certain that that's true. We'll take a break. We'll give ourselves a chance and the audience a chance to kind of gather their wits or run really quickly and watch this movie because I don't understand what the hell we're talking about and come back. <laughs> and then we'll talk more about it right after this. Hey, have you listened to the Art Curious podcast? Have you read the book? Have you watched the YouTube channel? No. <sighs> I just, what are you doing with your life? Art Curious is a universe of content about all things unusual in art. It's the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful. It's hosted by the lovely and talented Jennifer Dassel. That's my wife. And it's the most bingeable content around. Is the Mona Lisa a fake? Was Vincent Van Gogh murdered? Was Donald Duck responsible for beating the Nazis? And what was the deal with Andy Warhol? Like, really, what was the deal? Listen, read, and watch fascinating stories like these and more when you subscribe today to Art Curious. Visit artcuriousmedia.com for more. Art Curious. Listen, read, watch. Art. Hey, you're listening to Subgenre. Welcome back. I am here in studio, with the computer, with the Zoom open, and I am talking to Mary Thurman from the West Coast about the 2016 animated film, Your Name. How you doing, Mary? You hanging in? Doing great. I'm super stoked to keep going on this discussion. I'm very excited that we are talking about this film. I am even more excited that you are the one I am talking about it with, not for the least of which is that you have seen it several times and can keep <laughs> us on track and explain the things that that I, as a first-time viewer, either missed or just absolutely didn't understand in the first place. You have given me carte blanche when it comes to geeking out about this film, and I am so stoked about that. Let's get back into our feature presentation. So when we last left off, we had both of our main characters, Taki and Mitsuha, really coming to this realization through writing on their arm and messages left for one another and everything everyone has been saying to them for the past couple of days that they have been swapping bodies, that they have been waking up as the other person, even if they may not understand why that is going on. This part two that we're going to be talking about this is where we get into some of the shift in plot and tone and other things that are going to happen with this film. And so therefore, it is going to become even more complicated in some ways than we have been talking about it before. So just stick with us. We will do our best to keep you on track here. We're going to break it down for you. We're guys. going to break it down for you. And we're going to start doing that by talking about after they both have this realization, we get a montage to really ground us in what's going to happen from there forward. 
as people who this is just happening to, as soon as they realize it's real, they're trying to, how are we going to live with this? Like, you, you can't just come back having messed up each other's lives. So they are trying to figure out how it works. It seems like a few times a week or once or twice a week, they switch bodies. And the trigger is sleep, and they don't know why it's happening, but it's pretty clear as soon as they are awake back in their own bodies that everyone around them will let them know that they weren't in their body. So they got to lay down some ground rules. You know, if somebody stepped into my life and started messing with my stuff, you know, I'm going to be a little perturbed about that. And they are exactly that. You know, they're looking not just at, hey, you opened the drawer I didn't want you to open or you, you know, added a thing to my phone that I didn't want you to add. They are, at least in the case of, of Mitsuha, when she's in Taki's body, she's basically creating him a love life that doesn't exist or, yeah. tr or trying to or get him in the mode to be a person that he is not. And he doesn't particularly appreciate that. She loves going to cafes and spending his money and he's more <laughs> aggressive than she is and so they start setting these rules for each other we see them you know like typing notes in the diary or like writing on each other's arms and like getting kind of more and more angry at each other too where it's just like he can't braid cords with her family and she's tired of working at his restaurant because he takes on too many shifts and he's like that's because you keep going to cafes you know <laughs> <laughs> and yeah she gets coffee with Okudera and you're like are you dating like is Taki on a date with Okudera and then she comes back into her body and a girl is confessing her feelings to Mitsuha and she's like why is a girl in love with me what did you do you know? <laughs> <laughs> the one thing they can agree on between both of them is that neither one of them wants to be in a relationship I think that gets said out loud you know to the air but really to one another in the course of this montage it's also like kind of cute because it's sort of that posturing when you're at that age too I don't know what the translation was on your end but on my end, it's like, I'm single because I want to be. And you're like, I'm definitely choosing this. And it's not because I can't do it myself. So the awkwardness of everything and the weirdness of everything continues. We have, you know, these moments of waking up from sleep with the phone alarm going off. This time it is Taki in Mitsuha's body. And he doesn't know what day it is. He doesn't know what things happen on what day. And so he gets dressed in a school uniform on a day where he doesn't need to get dressed in a school uniform and comes mm -hmm. out and everybody's like, or Yotsua specifically is like, what are you doing? Just why are you so odd? <laughs> The disdain that Yotsua has for her sister is just amazing. But on TV, there's another report about the comet. Yeah, it's coming. But they are taking this day off in order to go to the sacred Miyamizu shrine. And so this is the part I might have mentioned earlier. They are going sort of further into the wilderness with her grandmother and her sister and Taki and Mitsuha's body. And they are going to the holiest place and bringing their sake there as an offering. Yeah. And this is a good chance, I think, to talk uh, just a little bit and give some sense of geography of Itamori. So mm -hmm. Itamori is this little rural town, we've said, not much to it. But what there is of it is built around this bay, this kind of small carve out inlet bay that looks like a big crater lake that you might. This very see. circular, very crater like yeah, that. bay <laughs> sitting way up above it is a mountain. And at the top of the mountain is not a point, but kind of a caldera, right? Like you might see if it was a inactive volcano. And so... Very circular. Very, very circular. And all of them, Mitsuha and Grandma and Yotsuha are having to climb a mountain, essentially, to mm -hmm. get to the top of this thing, to get where they're going. And of course, 
grandma is grandma and is having a hard time getting up the mountain. So Mitsuha picks her up and throws her on her back and carries her up the mountain. It's another one of those little animation-y things that I love where it's Taki and Mitsuha's body. And so the idea of, you know, carrying this tiny grandma is just automatic to Taki. He's just like, oh, I'll just pick her up. But then in Mitsuha's body, he picks her up and like, kind of stumbles or struggles for a second and then gets the feet under him and you're like oh you're used to being like a young man you know and Mitsuha is like kind of delicate and so it's just a little animation thing you get to see about like how they're using what he might be used to but in a different body. I didn't understand why grandma accepted. She doesn't know that Mitsuha swapping necessarily and so Mm -hmm. she never thinks twice about it. But she does you know because she's not struggling and walking anymore she can sort of like teach them along the way Mm. and another very significant moment. We had talked about the braided cords, right, of the family. Mm -hmm. And we had talked about how Mitsuha wears one of these cords in her hair. And Mm -hmm. Grandma gives us this high-level understanding of why these cords are important. And really, as you, I believe, had mentioned near the top of the episode, there is a connection between the braiding of cords and a view of how time works. And how time is not just a straight line, how it can twist and how it can break and how it can retie itself. And basically, it's a malleable thing, time, and the cords are a representation of that. The understanding that is passed down and the word is musubi, which I don't know Mm -hmm. if they used in the English translation, but it means like nodding. We make these cords. It is an ancient way of calling God. It is tying thread as musubi, connecting people as musubi. Musubi is the flow of time. And so as they're going up through nature to this mountain, she, you know, is like talking about everything is connected. It's all about these connections that, as you were saying, they unravel and rebind. And that is what sort of the world is. And that is what time is. And it is represented by these knotted cords that we make as like an art for our God. And after having given them all of this information on the way up there, they eventually find themselves in this caldera, in this flat area at the top of the mountain. And in the middle of it is a river, a stream of some sort. The grandma refers to it as this is the entrance to the netherworld, which I think to the girls at that point, you know, they understand it, but they don't understand it. And grandma is talking about how once they step across here to reach it, they've got to leave behind what they value the most. And that's part of why they brought the sake. When they're talking about the sake, there's a moment where, of course, Mitsu is really tired from carrying grandma. And she's like drinking a bunch of water and grandma's like, that's musubi as well. When you consume something, it joins your soul. We are leaving the sake that you chewed and spat out. And it is representative of half of yourself Mm -hmm. is what we're leaving here as like an offering. And she says like inside the God's body, it's this giant rock that's, you know, in the middle of this crater. And they go sort of underneath the rock into this like little cave to make this offering. And they refer to it as leaving half of yourself inside the body of the god of the shrine. The bottles that are left behind, I think there's two that are left behind, one from Mitsuha mm-hmm. and one from Yotaha. And after they have left the bottles in the shrine, then they are standing at the top of this mountain and kind of looking down over Itomori. And it is right at twilight. In the English translation, they talk about magic hour, you know, which is another filmmaking term, too, but really just Mm -hmm. means that moment where everything is golden and beautiful and transitioning from day to night. And in that moment, Grandma looks at Mitsuha and just says to her quizzically, 
you're dreaming now, aren't you? In the Japanese version, they use the word for twilight again. In the classroom at the very beginning, the teacher says the word for twilight and somebody in the classroom is like, isn't it this other word? Isn't it katawari doki? And she's like, oh, I think that's an older like dialect version. And when they're up there at the shrine, Yotsuha, her sister is like, oh, it's katawari doki. Like she uses the old word for twilight and you get the sense that sort of maybe twilight as like a concept has been important throughout time the word has evolved there's an older dialect version maybe specifically to this region having to do with twilight yeah shinkai's so, yeah. really good with these little details grandma looks at mitsuha as like you're dreaming and then taki wakes up as himself crying yeah and sees a text from okudera that's like oh i'm almost here <laughs> you know? right it's so a he's, really like stark transition he's gone from this magic moment on top of a mountain to waking up in his apartment and finding out that okudera the lady that he's maybe got a crush on who has been being messed with by mitsuha as him is on her way to meet him somewhere that he has no idea <laughs> that he had even made the appointment. He's just like, I'm having this moment. I got essentially like sent back into my body by this moment. Oh no, I'm late for a date. And you're <laughs> kind of like put back into that teenager-y point of view, but with still like bringing that beautiful, almost like nostalgia of that moment of having been on that literal mountaintop. But then of course he's got to like rush to the station for this date and find out what Mitsuha like arranged for them to do. <laughs> it's very similar to when, um, when Mitsuha was rushing to find his school because she was late and rushing to find his job because she was late and didn't know her way around. He's now sort of put in the position by her to not know where he's going early on and then have to rush mm -hmm. to get there to meet Okudera, which thankfully he does. He gets to the station you know, relatively on time, meets up with Okudera, and this is their first date, you know? Yeah, kind of, first like official date. First I official think. date, yeah. And mm -hmm. they go to what looked to me like it was the Tokyo Sky Tree, which is like this big, mm -hmm. wonderful tower in the middle of Tokyo where you can kind of look out on everything, including Mount Fuji, and takes her there up in the sky for a date. Now at this point in the film, we're able to kind of cut back and forth between Taki and Mitsuha because we know that they're existing on the same timeline. You know, Mitsuha is like, oh, they must be like meeting up right about now. And she She's in her body and she just like looks in the mirror and finds herself crying. And she's like, I arranged this date. I wanted to have the experience of going on this date. She actually left Taki some like websites that are like mildly insulting. She's like, I don't think you've ever been on a date. Here are some links. And the links are like seven ways to get a girlfriend. But she also arranged a very thoughtful date. They're going to a photography exhibition about nostalgia. Well, let me ask the emotion that she's feeling with thinking about Taki's on the date right now. Where does the emotion come from, do you think? Is it that she wanted to be the one to put Taki in that position to mm -hmm. be with Okadera? Is it that she she has a crush on Okadera herself, even though she's in Taki's body. Is it? What do you think it is? You're going to get a little bit more information later on that leads me to this perspective. I think part of it is the realization that setting him up on an actual date and then she's not there to go experiencing it, that it's like not her life. She has this connection with Taki. They swap bodies, but... By him going on this date with Okadera, she's almost letting him go in an interesting way. She's like, you know, here's this other woman who's going to be close to you. And also, I have lived as you, but I am not you. And you are almost moving away from me, maybe into this potential relationship. Mm. At the same time, maybe she just wanted to go to the sky tree. I don't know. In that moment, it did read to me a little bit like one of those quizzical moments of, is she actually herself interested in Okadera? You know, you is, know could be. I've found this 
person who, li- even though I'm not in my own body, this person who who likes me and we get along and I have fun and maybe there's a little bit of attraction there or something. It kind of felt like that when I was watching it mm-hmm. at this point in the film. I think you could totally interpret it that way. I also think in that moment too, early on, and I'll talk more about this later, but early on when she, you know, sort of cries out to the skies and she's like, just let me be a handsome Tokyo boy in my next life. It's almost like she was given that, but it's not fully hers. And so it's this thing where it's like, maybe she does just want to be this handsome Tokyo boy who can take this beautiful older woman on this date, but that's not actually her life. And she's, you know, back in Itamori and she's also has her counterpart is is experiencing it instead of her. So like, it's there's a lot of ways you could take it. I respect any interpretation of that moment because it's just very emotional and they don't really need to like explain to us exactly why. I hope to come back as a handsome Tokyo boy at some point. Uh, Don't we all? What a good time that would be. (laughs) They are on this date. As you mentioned, it is a thoughtful date, right? They're at a photo exhibition. The photo exhibition is about nostalgia. Isn't that convenient? But in the photo exhibition that they're looking at, Taki sees these pictures that are Itomori. And they strike something in him that is just familiar. He almost tears up, too. He's like, this seems super familiar to me. And Okadera can tell the difference between being with Taki as Taki and Mitsuha as Taki and says to him, you know, today you seem like a different person than maybe you were yesterday. Is it the fact that you have a crush on someone else? And And, that ends the day. Yeah, he kind of asks, you know, does she want to keep going? And she's just like, no, it feels like maybe you like somebody else. And he does that thing where he's like, no, no, no. But like blushes a little bit. The implication for us as the viewer is Taki and Mitsuha have this like connection. And Okudera can tell he's more focused on the notes that she left. He's not really present with Okudera for the sake of Mitsuha. Whether or not he feels those feelings in that way, she's correct that his mind is elsewhere. And the date ends on this bridge, which we'll we'll see a few times, but Taki's left by himself. He's going through the note or notes that Mitsuha has left to him in his phone, one of which says that at this point he should be able to see the comet in the sky. And he takes a look at the sky and has no idea what she's talking about. No comet. And he's like, what does she mean? And we're like, oh. And so he actually like finds Mitsuha's number in his phone and does something they've never done before. He tries to just call her, talk to her directly. And did he find um, her number in his phone because she had left it there? Or was he looking up Mitsuha, you know, in you the know, yellow pages, it, whatever the equivalent of the yellow pages is today? It felt like it was in his contacts, but it's difficult to say whether she put it there or whether by like being in her body, he just like knows it. It doesn't explain to us. So he calls that number, whatever's in there, and it says that that number, the operator comes back and says that that number is not a working number, I think. But... On Mitsuha's end, the phone rings and Mitsuha Mm -hmm. answers the phone, which we think she's going to answer and talk to Taki, but instead it's Teshi. And he is calling her to talk about the comet and about the autumn festival that's coming up. Yeah, she seems kind of sad. We don't know exactly if that's about the date or what's going on, but he's concerned about her. And she's like, oh, the festival. Yeah, maybe I will go. Maybe I'll go look at the comet. And she meets up with Teshi and Saya and they are at the quote unquote cafe, which they've improved. There's now, you know, a (laughs) couple of chairs made out of stumps, etc. But she meets them and they have a bit of a surprise. She has cut her hair short and Mm -hmm. looks a very different person. And 
I can't remember if Saya likes it or not. I'm sure Saya is very supportive of it one way mm-hmm. or the other. You know, oh, doesn't it look great? And Teshi voices, I think, to Saya that he thinks that she did it because of a boy. And you'll notice this is, you know, the first time that we see Mitsuha in her body without her ribbon in her hair. And that'll come up again. So she cuts her hair. They see the comet start passing overhead. Yep. It's beautiful, lights up the sky. And it feels like we mentioned at the very beginning, there's a piece of it that is branching off. And it feels like it's breaking off and starting to fall to earth like a meteorite. You get mm-hmm. the understanding of memory or connection or mm-hmm. familiarity with her, which is not explained. And it's brief, but it cuts us back to Taki standing on that bridge, getting the, you know, the number you have called is not in service message. And him saying to himself in voiceover, and we I don't know that we've mentioned to this point, but we get a lot of voiceover in certain places, mm-hmm. and him saying, I'll just tell her the next time that we switch how badly this date went, but that switch never happened again. He's just left wondering, I couldn't reach her. She's never come back into my body. So he starts drawing pictures of Itamori based on his memories as Mitsuha. And finally comes to the decision and he just packs up his drawings and goes to the train station. And that moment between when he tries to call her, doesn't get her, she sees the comet overhead and he says that the switches never happened again, really feels like a dividing line in the movie Mm -hmm. between, you know, we talked about that opening, felt sort of, you know, coming of age, high school kids, story and awkwardness and all that kind of stuff. This second bit has been the, you know, what you might refer to as the fun and games part of everything. Mm -hmm. It's the learning to live in someone else's body and setting up the ground rules. No, isn't that funny that I'm setting you up on dates and spending your money and all of that stuff and the development of whatever is happening with Okadera. This is where we switch gears again and go into a bit more of a a seeking mode on Taki's part, a bit more of a serious mode on his part in terms of trying to figure out A, who is Mitsuha, and B, what is this connection to her and Itomori and all of these other things that I'm feeling, and that will move forward from here. Yeah, it's sort of like they were so busy interacting with each other and like figuring out how to live with this situation that now that she's suddenly absent, he's like, oh, what was the situation? Where is she? And he goes to the station. He's determined that he's just going to go find her. And Okadera and Tsukasa are there. He didn't invite them. They're just there. Not at all. (laughs) They figured out kind of what he's going to do or that he's going to be going to do something nutty. And so they decide they're going to go and keep an eye on him, essentially, or help him or both. And he's just like, come on, you guys, this was supposed to be a secret trip. And he can't really explain to them like, hey, I've been body swapping with someone. So he kind of implies that he's going to meet a friend he's never met before. I don't know, maybe they're like an Internet friend or something, but he doesn't really explain. And he's just like, unfortunately, all I know is the landscape of where they are. And his friends, again, are just confused, but are very good friends. And they're like, all right, if we're taking like a weird vacation to the countryside, we'll follow your strange scavenger hunt. They kind of accept it. It's just a day out for them, you know, to Mm. watch this weird happening. And part of the weird happening is Taki is rolling and unrolling these drawings that he has made of Itamori, which Mm. he doesn't quite know why he's been drawing Itamori, but he has. And he doesn't know that 
it is Itamori. All he knows is that it's somewhere in the country and we're going to go and show these pictures I've drawn to people and hope that people understand where this is and can point me in the right direction. And he's about ready to give up. Nobody is recognizing this until they go to a restaurant and a waitress actually sees this sketch and is like, oh, isn't that Itamori? And calls her husband, who uh, appears to be the chef, and confirms it and says, yeah, that's Itamori. I was actually born and raised there, which Taki is jazzed at this point because he's like, oh, sweet. I know where this is. That means I can go and find Mitsuha. Let's go and see it. But the name Itomori means something to everybody else in this restaurant. It seems, including his friends, that didn't connect with Taki yet. They all know what he doesn't, which is that when the comet broke three years ago, the piece of the comet crashed into the town and destroyed it. And hundreds of people died. It had to be abandoned. It was like a third of the population of the town perished. And he cannot believe it. There is no Itomori anymore. There hasn't been for three years. And he's like, that can't be. Like, I was with her not that long ago. And he tries to open his phone to show the memos that Mitsuha wrote, but they pixelate and fade away. And in that moment, you realize not only are we body swapping, was as a time twister, their timelines were staggered. That Mitsuha has been in his body and he's been in hers, but they are also have been three years apart. Yeah. And it's amazing as a viewer because they're the same age you do kind of assume that they're just existing at the same time but they are not (laughs) yeah if your brain hadn't melted with everything before this was the moment where my brain melted nearly into a little puddle and went oh "Oh, man okay so i'm trying to picture it in my head how this thing could have been working and coexisting timelines that were happening three years apart and it's nuts stuff on a timeline but it's really a striking moment in the film he's having this absolute crisis like just to bring us back to where Taki's at at the moment because he's searching for someone and this huge disaster happened and so they go to like a library he's reading through all these articles it's like no one expected this comet to break apart the meteor struck Japan and Okudera finds a book with the names of people who died and it struck Japan on the day of the autumn festival mm-hmm. um, which is what we saw Mitsuha and Saya and Teshi all going to before we ever cut back to Taki in the city on the day of the autumn festival it's like 8 42 p.m it's basically like where everyone is gathered to go look at the meteor is where it hit which is one reason why so many people died and so he opens the book with the names of the dead in it and he finds saya he finds teshi and then he finds mitsuha and you're hoping as a viewer i was hoping as a viewer as he's going through you know saya and teshi yeah maybe somehow mitsuha's name is not in there but it is And that confirms to him that this person who he has been body swapping with and communicating with and who has been working on his life is Mm -hmm. someone who died three years ago. Here's the thing, too, Josh, which I actually didn't notice really myself. The part where she is yelling, can I just be a handsome Tokyo boy in my next life? Inadvertently, she kind of gets that wish Mm. because what she doesn't realize is he's three years ahead of her. She is getting to live the life of a handsome Tokyo boy and she's already dead. She gets sort of like half of a next life as 
Taki for a period of time. And it's a really interesting detail to be like, in some ways, he is her next life, but maybe not entirely. There's so many good things that they did in this movie. (laughs) So yeah, it's just this thing where he can't like really process this and his friends are worried about him, right? Like Okudera and Tsukasa are like in a waiting room just talking about Taki. In the process of talking about him and, you know, what's happening with Taki and just trying to be good friends and be there for him, but also have the behind the scenes talk about him. Okudera admits some feelings for Taki. You know, he has this side to him that I see that I like. While they are doing that, Taki is going through the articles and reading all about the meteor crash and, and all of that and really comes to think that there's the possibility he might have been dreaming this whole body swap situation and the being an Itamori situation based just on his memories from three years ago of the comet strike, which he didn't pay a ton of attention to then, but maybe seeped into his subconscious. He has this moment where he's like, did I make this all up? And it's only broken by Ukadera, who sits down with him. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry I've been so weird lately. Is this all in my head? And she uh, sort of turns around what she's been reading. And she's like, oh, look at these local crafts. Like they used to make braided cords in Itamori. And that's when she notices there's one around Taki's wrist which we mentioned before, and it is this red cord that he has always kept around his wrist. And she's like, oh, where did you get that? That looks very similar to the one in the book. Yeah, and he doesn't really remember where he got it. He says, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I think someone gave it to me at some point. I don't remember. It's it's kind of my lucky charm. I wear it as that. But I, I do remember someone saying how cords like this represent time and twisting and tangling. And he just sort of has that memory, at least a little bit of that lesson from grandma. And he is just sort of whispers to himself and he's like, maybe at that place. And we know that he's referencing the holiest place, the body of the god in the shrine. Mm -hmm. Maybe at that place I can use this knowledge. These three friends are, they've gone out to the country together. They are staying at an inn together, sharing a room basically, at an inn together. And after we have heard Taki say, hey, maybe I can use this knowledge, we get the next morning and we have Okudera waking up. I think we've heard Mitsuha's voice kind of in dream, maybe to Taki Mm -hmm. talking about, don't you remember? Okudera wakes up and finds that Taki is no longer in the room, that he is gone. The only thing that is left is that he has left a note to both of them, not terribly specific, but says he has to go do something, that maybe they should go back to Tokyo without him. And Taki has sort of befriended the chef from the restaurant who was born in Itamori, and he drives him to Itamori. Taki hikes up the mountain in the rain and finally reaches that holy space, the caldera, where that body of the god, the big rock where they visited before is. And there's like a little moment with the chef too. Like the chef gives him a lunchbox and it's just like, your drawings of Itamori were really good. He's almost affirming, hey, you're not crazy. Like you brought something back to me that was lost. It almost like spurs him on to being like, no, this is real. And he's going to go to this holy place. Well, he gets him to, the chef does, gets uh, Taki to the bottom of the mountain. Taki climbs the mountain, the same path that he had taken with grandma and the sister to get up there and heads toward this cave. In the course of doing that, has to pass over and through this stream that grandma had described as crossing into the netherworld. Mm-hmm. And it's much deeper now. He name checks it. He's like, beyond here is the underworld. But he crosses just the same. Also, when he's climbing up there, just very briefly, you do see the two craters, the bay and then the crater left by the meteor behind him as he heads down into this third crater where the 
shrine is. And it's this juxtaposition of almost this has happened before. Like mm-hmm. you get this like visual implication of like the first crater of Itamori, the second crater where the meteor hit, and then like you're heading into this third one. I just thought it was very visually interesting. But anyway, yes, crosses into the netherworld. And on that side of the stream is the cave. This is the cave where they had left the sake jars before for the god. And down in the cave, the jars are still there. He finds both of the jars having been left at the shrine and makes this connection either through, I think we understand it through voiceover or otherwise, that their times got tangled, him and Mitsuha's, just before the comet had come three years ago. You'll have to remember, too, that the sake, yes, it's like sake that's been offered to the gods. It also represents half of Mitsuha, is what her grandmother said. And so he's hoping to almost regain that connection to her. And so he opens Mitsuha's sake, because you'll also remember it was him and her body when they put the sake down there. So he knows which one is the sisters and which one is Mitsuha's. And there's this very interesting moment where he goes, oh, that's my sister's and that one's mine. And he opens it and he drinks it. And it's almost like that embodiment that we talked about, about like their connection and like who's who. He's like, this one's mine, even though it's Mitsuha's. And he drinks the sake and is hoping that by doing so, he's going to have another chance. I'd read an interview with Makoto Shinkai about this and there is that really interesting connection that happens there with the sake and also mm-hmm. that he had intended it as also a bit of a play on the sharing of something with someone who you are starting to have a relationship with, so, you know, like the sharing of a Coke. It's an, yeah. it's an intimate gesture of you're both putting your mouth on it and you're both sort of having that same experience together that this is another version of that just on an elevated supernatural level. Oh, that makes so much sense. There's this thing in anime, maybe just Japanese culture, but I'm not Japanese. I can't speak to it. It's an indirect kiss. The idea is like if you drink something after someone, your lips touch where their lips have touched. And so like this is like a very supernatural indirect kiss that they are having. Josh, that's so good. You gave me something new about this film. It's so good. I have accomplished my goal. You did the thing. (laughs) And so to open the sake, he has to untie a red cord. It's nodding. And he's like thinking about that concept. And when he's like calling on that God in a way, he's like in the shrine, in the body of the God, grandmother earlier said when you drink something it becomes a part of you and so he drinks the sake and he's like if time can really be turned back give me one more chance and after having said that and after having drank the sake he starts to stand and loses his footing and slips backwards. And as he is slipping backwards, his phone, the light on his phone that he's been using to illuminate the sake, turns upward at the ceiling. And we see inside the shrine, inside the cave on the cave walls here, is painted a large mural of a comet splitting in two and falling to Earth. The drawings here look old. Like, it's not something that's acknowledged by Mitsuha, Yotsuha, or grandmother when they're going there. It has that sort of premonition or or repetition of the cycle of something that maybe has happened before and has been documented on the ceiling, but because it's so dark, nobody noticed it almost. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like a cave drawing that's warning you of something that will happen again. It's very interesting. And that is the gateway, that moment of seeing the cave drawing and having drunk the sake and the falling over and assuming hitting of one's head once he does that leads us into this very artsy, representative, dreamlike 
sequence that mm -hmm. traces really the timeline of Mitsuha's past. It shows the comet in the sky. The trail of the comet becomes that red thread of fate like around his wrist, which becomes the comet again. Its impact becomes just like a drop of water and then a cell and life forming and a child being born. And that thread becomes an umbilical cord. And it really is like visualizing everything that the grandmother was saying to the idea that life and time are these knots and connections. And he is living through her life. And we get more information on Mitsu as a character. We see sort of what happened to her family and how her father left. We get the information that her mother died with Yotsuha, that her father was racked with guilt over everything and, and not being able to help her. And so this sort of sent her father down a path where he you know, went off on his own and abandoned things, which caused them to go live with the grandma, which then leads into what we have seen develop over the course of this movie, Mitsuha deciding to go to Tokyo and cutting her own hair. It's this tracing along the timeline of this cord, those things that came before those things we have seen and then leading off to what may come. And Taki is seeing all of that and experiencing it and he just shouts out for her to run to get out and like watches as the comet falls. But instead, Mitsuha wakes up. She's alive. But it's Taki in her body. It's such a beautiful sequence. And then suddenly Taki's like, can I have a chance? Can I have a chance to save her? And he's given one last body swap, essentially. He's in her body Yotsuha comes to announce breakfast and Taki as Mitsuha is just crying. Also like holding her boobs still like oh, <laughs> every that. time that Taki Freaky Fridays into her body, he wakes up holding her chest. And she's so excited to see her sister again. And yeah, Mitsuha, or Taki rather, in Mitsuha's body, watches the news, which says, oh, the comet's going to be at its brightest tonight. I still have time. Yeah. Tonight is when the meteor falls. Yeah, he realizes, to drag another old reference out, he's quantum leaped into the right time, you know, just mm -hmm. a few hours before what's going to go down. So he's given himself enough time to do the things that he needs to do, hopefully, as Mitsuha. While he is watching this TV broadcast, the grandma, Hitoha, looks at Mitsuha and says directly, you are not Mitsuha. I can tell from how you've been acting, this is not you. Mm -hmm. And it brings something up for her. She was just like, yeah, I can't quite remember things but there's something about you that's not you. And I feel like I went through something similar and your mother also went through something similar. And you get this sense that this whole body swapping that Mitsuha is going through might be more than just a Freaky Friday. It might be something that's passed down through the shrine maidens who worship that god in the caldera and help maintain that shrine, that there's something about that that is almost genetic to her. Grandma says, yes, this happened. And that's why I recognize it. But she does doesn't have a strong memory of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you think you would remember these things, right? If they happen to you. But she says, yes, I know it happened, but it's not a strong memory of it. But that's how I can recognize that you are not you. Taki as Mitsuha has this reaction. It's like all of those things that are passed down in our family, the meaning of it was lost 200 years ago. I think it's all for tonight. I think it's like a warning and tells grandma, it's up to us to save everyone. The comet's going to fall. We're all going to die. And cut to Mitsuha stomping out of the house and being like, that sounds ridiculous. That's a really conventional response from you, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's this climactic 
tactic. This is the meaning of our family serving this god. And then it's just like, you don't believe me. <laughs> Why doesn't grandma believe her? If grandma believes that Mitsuha is not Mitsuha and grandma has had this experience before where things have been swapped and grandma believes in kind of, you know, time and chords and everything, it seemed very weird to me that just out of hand she would go, nope, you're wrong. I think it is because she doesn't really remember it. I think she's like, yeah, that's like a thing that happens to people in our family sometimes. Maybe it's a time thing, but I think maybe the leap in logic to I'm from the future, we're all going to die might have just been a little too much for her. Well, she doesn't believe she can't help. And so Taki as Mitsuha really only has one conclusion to draw from that. It is up to him to save everyone here with the knowledge that he has. He Mm -hmm. cannot do that alone. So he goes to find Teshi and Saya and basically drafts them into this mission to save the town. So whereas we had the fun in games early on of being in one another's body, now we're in sort of a separate section of that where we are planning the heist to some degree. We're figuring out what supplies we're going to need and what the plan is and who's going to do what to execute this thing to save the town. And it's another thing where I'm like, she has such good friends, you know, because Saya is reluctant. She's like, it sounds like you're going to try to do something illegal. Tashi, however, being kind of into like almost conspiracy type things, yeah. you know, which we've talked about. He's like, it might not be crazy. Do you know how the Lake of Itamori was actually created? A meteor hit the area 1200 years ago, 1000 years ago, forming this original crater. And Mitsuha is like, oh my gosh, that's what the cave painting is about. This has happened before and will happen again. And meanwhile, Teshi's like, I can get explosives from the construction site. Yeah, no, Teshi's ride or die, man. He's good to go. The other two friends are gung-ho about this, so Saya is going to be too. She doesn't feel like she, she wants to, but she'll do it. And there's when we come back around to the town's warning system, those speakers throughout the town that we've introduced a couple of times talking about the mayoral campaign, etc. They're like, oh, we can broadcast this warning to the whole town. And they're like, oh yeah, Saya, you're in broadcasting <laughs> That's club. your job. And she's, she's like, isn't this a crime? <laughs> um, but no, they're all here to help her. Teshi more so, maybe but they're here to support. So Taki, as Mitsuha, goes to see the mayor, goes to see her dad to convince him, because he is the mayor, to evacuate the town. You, dude, have the power to save everybody. I need you to evacuate the town. Of course, just like grandma, and probably even more so, dad doesn't believe this message of everybody's going to die from the comet and really thinks that what Mitsuha should be doing is going to see a doctor because mm-hmm. she's obviously sick in the head. It's kind of like a normal person's reaction. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like it, you kind of have this moment where you have been on this whole journey with them and then you're confronted with how it must sound. He, in the not believing of him, it stirs something up in Taki. You remember the quick to anger Taki? And he mm-hmm. storms the desk and grabs dad by the tie and, you know, basically is going to give him the what for. And in that moment of doing that, dad looks into Mitsuha's eyes and has a realization that that is not Mitsuha and wants to know who it is. And does that imply then that the dad has also had this body switching thing that he doesn't quite remember because that he's able to make that connection? You know, that's interesting. It's sort of passed down maternally is how I interpreted it through Mitsuha's family. But like, I think it's almost their relationship as father and daughter that has been established earlier is like he's very authoritarian and she doesn't stand up to him. And it's almost like that act 
act of looking him in the eye for the first time is just him being like, you're not my daughter. Who are you? And so it doesn't work. He he doesn't agree to evacuate anybody. And Taki, as Mitsuha, is like, what do I do? I couldn't convince him. And just sees like these little kids who are like, oh, let's go see the comet tonight. And he's just like, don't go. Don't go. You're just children. You're going to die. And they're like, you're insane. <laughs> <laughs> And Yotsuha is kind of on the heels of these kids that are walking by. And so Taki as Mitsuha grabs her and basically tells her, look, you have to promise me that tonight you're going to skip town, that you're going to grab grandma and you are both going to get out of here. And Yotsuha's like, I don't get what you're doing. And why weren't you here yesterday? Why did you go to Tokyo? Which is news. Mm -hmm. Yotsuha's like, you're acting crazy. Yesterday, you up and went to Tokyo and then cut your hair off. And Taki's like, I went to Tokyo? That's weird. I don't know what happened with that. But is also just, of course, still like everyone's going to die. Don't really have time to dwell on that. Mm -hmm. And is just like, oh, I wonder, is it me? Like, if this was Mitsuha, would she have been able to convince her father? Would she have be able to do what I have failed at. And has a realization moment looking up at the mountain and wondering if the real Mitsuha, you know, because we're hearing the story of what happened yesterday, if the real Mitsuha is somehow up there at the top by the shrine and he really, even though we're all going to die by the comet in a minute, I really need to go find this out. Yeah, he's sort of just like, could she do what I can't? And then wait, my body's at the shrine. Is she in my body at the shrine? And it's it's simultaneously this like need for them to meet, but also he like needs her to be able to convince her father. And so he grabs Teshi's bike and just like starts going up the mountain and is like, yeah, I'll meet you guys. Continue with the plan. I'll Continue criming. I'll be back later. Keep felonying. Like, please, <laughs> please set up some explosives at this power station. And, like, mm -hmm. you know, like, and so, yeah, at the cave, he's correct. Mitsuha does awaken as Taki. Yep. In his his body and whereas Taki had fallen into this trance, comes out of that, exits the cave and walks to the edge of the mountain to look down at Itomori, but sees that Itomori is not there anymore. And this is also telling us that she's waking up as him back in his timeline. Three years right? later. Like they're still on three year apart timeline. But she, when she looks down, she also has this moment where she realizes when I saw that piece of the comet coming down from the sky, I died, didn't I? And she just kind of goes to her knees, tears in her eyes. Oh, yeah, I died. Her doing that is intercut with Taki as Mitsuha coming up the mountain to try to find her up there. So we see that they're on a bit of a potential collision course of coming together. Mitsuha goes back in her memory and remembers this going to Tokyo moment that Yotsuha had mentioned earlier. She had gone to Tokyo telling Yotsuha, I think, that she was going for a date or something, or tell, maybe even telling Saya that she was going for a date, but she was actually going to try to meet Taki. When we were asking earlier, how do we interpret her crying at him going on this date? My reaction to it has to do with the fact that this is what spurs her to go and try to meet him. He's going on this date with Okudera and she's just like, I need to go meet this guy. We have this connection and have been swapping into each other's bodies. But in this moment, she goes to try to meet him and she can't really find him, which is odd because she should know exactly where he would be that day. Mm -hmm. But we as viewers know that their timelines are three years off. And so when she goes to Tokyo to meet him, he's three years younger. And so she actually does find him, but he doesn't know who she is. 
they're on subway trains that are near one another. Metro of some sort. Yeah. And she sees him on the train and runs to board the train and comes face to face with him. And she's blushing. She's like expecting this impressive, maybe tender reunion. And he doesn't really notice her. He's just kind of like looking at these little flashcards and is not reacting to her at all. It's only when she says his name, Taki, and he looks up like, who knows my name? And it doesn't work the way that she expected. She kind of deflated is going to, I think, get off at the next stop or starts to get off the next stop. And he decides as she is leaving to ask her name. And Mm -hmm. she calls back at him in what we get as a repeat or reflection of what we had seen much, much earlier in the film. She calls out to him, it's Mitsuha, and tosses this braided cord from her hair to him. And that's the one that we realize is going to come to be the thing he wears around his wrist as a good luck charm. The braided cord, that's Musubi. That's the connection between them is like her throwing him this cord. And we're realizing that like her wearing the cord in her hair and him wearing it on his wrist is also a product of different timelines because it's the same cord. And so when she goes to Tokyo, comes back with cut hair, no cord in her hair, that's because she gave it to him and he has had it this whole time throughout the movie. It's just in the future. So it's just been the same (laughs) red cord the whole time. I don't know. It's pretty great. If you sit and think about it too long, your brain will explode. But yes. You kind of realize, oh, this is where it began. He didn't know you. And that's also why she's like sad when she like cuts her hair, etc. She comes to her friends and she seems really off. And it's just because, you know, this person who's so important to her didn't even know or recognize or seem to care about her. But he really cares now, which is why he's, you know, breaking Teshi's bike and running up the caldera to come try and meet her. Everything that has happened in the movie to this point, all of it, is Mm -hmm. pushing us to this moment that is coming. It is Taki as her coming up the hill and Mitsuha as him standing on the edge of the mountain and he is calling out to her or she calls out to him first. They end up yelling one another's name and Mm -hmm. they can hear each other. They follow the voices until both of them are right in the middle of the top of this mountain looking down over Itomori and they are essentially standing where the line between the netherworld is and isn't. There's this very interesting line as they're like searching for each other where they're like, would you know me? Would you like see that I was the one inside you and you were the one inside me? Which almost kind of calls back to the consumption of the sake too. Then there's that moment where you're talking about where they're like next to each other and they can hear each other, but they can't see each other. Yeah, they're essentially standing on two different sides of an invisible line and can hear each other, but can't see one another until they can. It comes right at the moment when twilight hits and all of a sudden both are visible to each other. That thing that we've been foreshadowing the whole time about twilight being this crossroads, this idea of you don't know who you're going to see or who you're going to find about the words, who are you coming from twilight? And they're like calling out each other's names. You know, they're like, Mm -hmm. it's like at first they were asking, who are you? And then they're finally able to meet because of this thinness in the barrier of reality at twilight. Uh, And they finally get to see each other face to face. What a moment. The first thought in her head to do once she gets over the shock of being able to see him is to chastise him for holding onto her chest all those times. It brings you back to that reality of like who they are, too. She's just like, you pervert, you grabbed my chest. And he's like, oh, no, what do you mean? I didn't do that. She's like, my sister saw you. And he's like, it was only one time. It's just like this awkward teenage moment again when they also have so much that is like passed between them. In this moment, they're kind of back in their own bodies for this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so she's, oh, you've been wearing 
my hair cord around your wrist this whole time. And so he gives it back to her and she ties it on her head as like a headband. We pass that article of time back to the other side, to the other person. And they spend a bit of time really just kind of being together and talking and chit chat and just kind of sharing the same space. And Taki gets the idea of I'm going to drag out my pen and so that we don't forget each other here, give me your arm. And he writes his name on her arm. The same way that she first wrote on his hand, Mitsuha, when he asked her, who are you? He's like, let's do that again. And he writes on her hand. And he's like, yeah, like, put your name on mine. And then hands her over. And she's like, oh, it's a great idea. Hands her over the pen. And she moves to write her name on his hand. And as the pen makes contact with his hand, twilight ends and she disappears. It's so jarring. It's like this beautiful moment they're having together and she draws one line and is gone. Boom. And so, of course, he doesn't have her name on his hand. And he starts saying, he's like, I'm going to find you no matter what. I'm not going to forget you. And he starts yelling her name and he tries to write it himself, but he can't remember it. Oh, this part of the movie got me, man. Impactful doesn't seem a strong enough word. This was a really emotional moment of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's just like because of the abruptness. Almost. Yeah, it's gut-wrenching. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a fun thing, Josh, that actually I can't take credit for. Remember when grandma said, when you cross over into the underworld, you have to leave what is the most important to you behind. And mm-hmm. he crosses into the underworld to bring her back and he leaves behind her name. Oh, Wow. I wish I'd come up with that. The most important thing to him is her name and he can't remember it. And earlier in the film, also, when grandma notices that he's in her body, she's like, well, dreams fade away when you wake up. And at the time you're like, "Okay, whatever. And then this happens and you're like, oh, man, just like grandma and her mom, they are forgetting each other and they're forgetting what happened, you know, when they were in each other's bodies. And it's like this deeply personal. You were inside of me and you know every part of me. You lived as me and I don't know you. And it's like, you're right. It feels like something is like lost. Like you feel like you lost something. It's like watching water drain out. It's this quick, you know, the thing that you're trying to contain and it just seeps away and you can't keep it from doing that. And once it's gone, it's gone. That's a, I think one of the better moments in this movie, in a movie full of really good moments. He's yelling wherever you're in the world, I'll search for you. Mitsuha, your name is Mitsuha. Who are you? Like someone precious, someone who I shouldn't forget. And then he's like, who are you? And then he's like, what's your name? And you're just like watching him forget. It's so good. Hurts. Top 10 anime betrayals. But like, oh, (laughs) so very good. And this forgetting, this fading away continues because Mm -hmm. it doesn't just end with Taki. We find Mm -hmm. Mitsuha now in her own body running back downhill to Itamori and saying Taki's name over and over. I won't forget you. Your name is Taki. I won't forget you. Your name is Taki. While the comet is passing overhead. So we can't even dwell so much in the grief we have to come back and be like he like forgot her does she save the town you know like the comet is coming we still have our ticking clock and she meets teshi at the power station and they're like planting explosives like the climax (laughs) of this movie is so intense you know like it's legit explosives too it's not like we're planting fireworks like they are really really planning some damage you're happy that they established that teshi has like experience at the construction site because you're just like oh man you could really hurt yourself with that 
that. And then the Sayaka is broadcasting from the school who has like a backup generator. So when the power goes out, the school should still be able to broadcast. So they plant their explosives. They run away. Boom. Here goes the entire power station just up in a puff of smoke. All the lights go out around town where suddenly our autumn festival is now in darkness. Saya is broadcasting over the loudspeakers. Everyone run. Everyone run. Evacuate. Everyone get to the high school. And the reason she's telling everybody to get to the high school is because historical knowledge of what had happened three years ago when this was happening is that the blast radius from whatever happened extended only so far and Mm -hmm. it spared the high school. So if they can get people that far, then they will have saved them. But that proves to be more of a challenge than they were hoping. Mitsuha is trying to do it. Teshi is trying to do it. They're telling everyone every emergency they can think of. No one will really listen to them because there are a couple of high school kids running through screaming that the sky is falling. And so no one is running the way that they hoped that they would. And in the middle of all of this yelling and commotion and all the things, remember she was running downhill before telling herself, you're going to remember Taki's name. You're going to remember Taki's name. There's been enough Mm -hmm. space now that she is starting to forget Taki's name. It's that like ongoing tragedy where she's just like, you're somebody precious to me. Who are you? Taki. Okay, everyone get out. There's been an explosion. It's going to start a wildfire. Everyone get out. Who are you? Taki. Who are you? And it's just like she's trying to do the two things at once and everything's going wrong for them. Her father, you know, is like, where are they broadcasting from? Who's taken over and is claiming to be the mayoral office? And so they take Saya off the air. Teshi gets found by his dad. Everything is going wrong. And the whole town is told by the mayor's office to stay in place. Some people were kind of responding to the broadcast, but then the mayor's office is like, we're investigating. While we're investigating, everyone just shelter in place, like stay where you are. This is the opposite of what needs to be happening. This is the worst possible outcome. And that's when she like trips and falls and is flashing back to that moment that they should write their names down on their hands. And she opens her hand and it doesn't say his name. Instead, it says, I love you. Uh, And it's I'm like tearing up, Josh. It's a whole thing. Get you every time. She's like, Taki, you idiot. That doesn't help me remember you. But she's tearing up as well because she doesn't remember his name. All she remembers is that there was someone who she loved and someone who loved her. It gives her sort of the motivation to walk into her father's office and look him in the eye herself for the first time. And leaning into her going in to do that, we get a chance to hear the TV news report talking about the comet has split apart, but the probability of an impact is very small, which we know obviously is not the case, but that it's being underestimated. And she barges her way into her father's office, and he's mad that she's done what she's done, and she's mad that he's not taking everything seriously the way that he needs to take it. And simultaneously with all of that happening in Itomori, when it is happening, we are with Taki three years ago Mm -hmm. watching this, you know, beautiful comet meteor shower thing that's happening from Tokyo Mm -hmm. and really just unaware of what's going to happen. And then it happens. The meteorite is falling and it destroys Itamori and Taki from Tokyo three years ago. He doesn't know her. And his voiceover right before this happens is, you know, looking at this magical northern lights like display in the sky. He's like, it was nothing more, nothing less than a beautiful view. That's what it means to him in that moment. And right after he says this, the meteor hits the ground and makes impact. And it is a hell of a scene. 
of the destruction of Itamori. It's one of the bigger, more dynamic disaster scenes that I've seen in a film. And the contrast between Taki's talking about it of what he viewed it as at the time and what it actually was to Mitsuha and everybody else in the town when it happened is really jarring. It feels real the way that they animate it because you know if you've ever seen like a video of an explosion or a mudslide it's that but you see the ground breaking and you see this place that we've become kind of familiar with both through Mitsuha and like Taki's drawings you see it get destroyed and this movie does such a good job of making you feel loss it makes you feel all of these connections like it's talking about the connection between people and place and musubi and all those things you feel that because you're coming along this journey at least for me i have to like take a breath because it really hits you you feel the impact of that destruction because you yourself have like loved this place. And all of the characters that you've known and all of the little, not just the big situations that have happened and, you know, running around and blowing stuff up and all of that, but all the little situations that have happened of being in school and remembering the braiding of the cords and all that, all of that is gone. It's swept away in an instant by this comet. It allows you to make the connection with everything that's been described before of how this was the end of Itamori and so therefore is the end of Mitsuha. Honestly, what Makoto Shinkai is very good at doing is personalizing disaster. That's Mm. something that he does in Weathering With You. It's almost directly associating this girl, do you sacrifice her or do you sacrifice the place? You can sort of see the echoes of that or beginning of that in this film. This disaster feels personal. Where for Taki, that contrast, it means nothing to him because that place means nothing to him. And for us as the viewer, it should mean nothing to us because we're not from there. You know, like this place isn't even real. But like personalizing that disaster and allowing you to see natural disasters and the power of nature and its impact on humanity as something personal to you and like feel that grief. It's sort of what you're talking about. I think it brings you back to Makoto Shinkai visiting the disaster area of that earthquake and how personal that must have felt, or at least imagining how personal that must feel to the people who live there and are from there and were lost. I think we both should take a moment to collect ourselves, let the audience have a moment to sort of breathe this in because this is a huge moment in the film that's going to push us into the last bits. And we'll have just a bit more about your name when we get back. Hey, subgenre listeners, this is Josh Dassel, host of the show you're listening to and founder of Kabunki, the company behind it all. If you listen to many podcasts, I do, then you know at this point or somewhere around here, you expect to hear a commercial or two, you know, ads. This is the time when we hear companies who support a podcast speak directly to their audience. So why aren't you hearing one now? Because this space is still available. Have a business, organization, product, or cause you need to promote? Ask Kabunki how to get your ads in front of our global audience of listeners today. The audience knows about movies. They know about pop culture. And soon, they could know about you, too. Support this podcast and advertise on Subgenre or other popular shows brought to you by Kabunki. Ask us more on the show website, subgenrepodcast.com, or at kabunki.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. You are listening to Subgenre. We are in the sixth episode of our third season and talking about the 2016 animated film Your Name from Makoto Shinkai. 
And I am still here with our good friend Mary from the West Coast. And we are coming out of, before the break, a moment that is certainly the biggest natural disaster moment in animation that I have ever seen. When you see the comet in the sky, the way the comet is presented, and even when you see it sort of breaking off, everything about that presentation, the visuals of it, everybody's reaction to it, the music that falls behind it, all of it, the coloration is made in such a way as to feel like uh, uplifting is the wrong word, but a, a very an ethereal moment. It's it, it, kind of right, though. It's like kind of joyful yeah. almost. Yeah, it's, it's something like, it's something to be celebrated. It's something to wash over you. The characters do this, and you as a viewer, at least I did, it sort of did that to me as well. And you look at it and you go, oh, isn't that beautiful? Oh, my goodness, how powerful and wonderful. And mm -hmm. the moment that it hits the ground, the jarringness of it, the only thing you can liken it to in this movie is the moment whenever Mitsuha disappears at twilight. And there's just that it's quick and you don't have any preparation for it. And there's a jarring moment of impact when she goes away. That is what this is just in a much, much bigger, more dynamic way. You know what I think it is? I think it's also that they do cut out all the music at that moment yeah. and you're just left only with the sounds of destruction mm. and i think that's part of the reason it also feels more real and it feels more documentary when the meteor hits it's just the sound of trees breaking ground breaking explosion and you as a viewer it feels more real to you because the music isn't there telling you how to feel it's just the raw noise it has some similarity in that way to I just got around to watching All Quiet on the Western Front, the version of it that came out um, this last year. And the music in it is very minimal when it is there. Mm -hmm. And it is it, it relies on sound a whole lot for the viscerality and for the impact of putting you kind of in that space. Because you're right. The movie sort of crosses genres. You have the teenager aspect and, you know, the body swapping and all that stuff. And this is maybe the most visceral, but it really does make you believe in what's happening. Yeah. Putting you in a space where you're just like, oh, no, this is the part that feels the most real about all of this. And the town has been such a character up to this point that you are watching the death of something familiar that's not only familiar to the characters, but to you and something that has been you know, it's just a nice place. And so when you see it destroyed, it, it has that impact. You know, and we're going to push into the last bit of the movie here. But this, for me, has been the biggest challenge in talking about this movie on this show. A lot of this film is emotional. Yeah. And so and it is hard to convey that, I think, in talking through plot of the film because it doesn't come out as much. That yeah, is a sure. challenge here. In that moment where we are talking, we are Mitsuho, all that stuff, we're trying to like save everybody we're trying to save the town you don't even like think about the fact that like you just can't stop the meteor like no matter what they're doing the town is gone and that's true too like as we go back into sort of the plot of the film is taki wakes up on the edge of the caldera where you know he previously was with mitsuha mm. and itamori is gone either way the comet has struck we don't know here whether or not they've succeeded we just know that the town is gone and he has this mark on his hand and he can't remember why and that's the only bit that's left of this entire adventure 
of being out there if we call it an adventure. That's the only thing that's left. And even it has no meaning to him at this point. Later, he's on the subway and he, you know, sees a girl on the platform with a red ribbon in her hair and he kind of like rushes off to find her, but she isn't there. And we get voiceover from him and he's like, I don't know why I'm always searching and I'm always consumed by this feeling. And we're kind of brought back to the beginning of the film as Mm -hmm. they're, you know, growing up, but he no longer has a memory of what happened. He just knows that he feels like he's lost something and he can't remember why. Yeah. And this was something that I remember reading and I can't remember if it was Makoto Shinkai or if it was, you know, one of the pieces I'd read about it, maybe the Atlantic piece about this presenting in the film of a position that a lot of us find ourselves in, which is this longing for something that isn't there anymore but that we can't quite put our hands around exactly what it is. And so therefore we can't ever fill it. And so you just settle into this constant state of being incomplete. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of where Taki finds himself day after day after day as he's doing what he's doing. And part of what he is doing now is he's out of high school and he is, you know, in the job world and trying to figure out what he wants to do in his life. And he is going around town interviewing for jobs and telling people, you know, what I really want to do is I want to create landscapes that will warm people's hearts. You know, he's got his drawings and things that he's done, but Mm -hmm. he's not having any luck in moving forward in his life, even though it seems that his friends are. I almost wonder if that's captured in that photography exhibition earlier, the name of it being like this nostalgia. Itamori is a place maybe symbolizes a little bit of that almost idyllic rural small town life. And there's something about being in the big city and something that maybe all of us can relate to, even if we haven't been body swapping with people that we feel in this, you know, modern day that we are like missing something. All I'd say, yes, he's searching for a job and another relatable aspect can't find a job. (laughs) And I think it's implied that he wants to do architecture or landscaping or something like that. To give a little bit of context to that quote that you gave, he says something which I feel like also is almost like something directly from Makoto Shinkai, but I don't know. He says, you never know when Japan will disappear. So I want to build heartwarming landscapes that will warm people's hearts. It's almost like a mission statement where it's just like you never know like how long you have. Yeah. Natural disasters, sea level rise. In the context of the other movies that Makoto Shinkai has like made, it feels like almost his mission statement is just like things are changing. We don't know how long we have here. So I want to do something that can be special now. I like it. It is the thing I think we all want to do, even if we don't know that we want to do it. And you're doing a podcast and it's special to me. So it's very, it's special now, you know? Oh, well, you're the one. I'm glad. It's me. My heart is warm. (laughs) (laughs) Again, the tonal shifts this film, I feel like does so well and knowing when to be stark and when to be less stark. And so as Taki like is confronted by trying to find a job, he, you know, reconnects with his friend from like high school. They're all at the same cafe again. And they're just like, oh, you can't find a job. I have two job offers. I have eight job offers. And yeah. he's just like, oh, adult <laughs> life. You know, like you kind of go back a little bit to that coming of age tone, mm-hmm. even though it has that like echo of loss in it now. And him internally through the VO also saying, you know, am I searching for someone or am I searching for somewhere? Not really knowing what it is that he needs after this amount of time, he gets to meet back up with Okudera, who has called him. And it's been eight years at this point, I think, since the comet disaster. And they're kind of having a chat about that as they walk and talk. And she brings up, hey, you remember that day that we went all out to Itomori? Remember we had that kind of adventure, all of us together? I don't remember too much about it. I just remember that we did it. 
And he kind of is in that same position of, oh, yeah, that was a thing, wasn't it? And not really remembering much of what happened there or why. I think that it's implied that they're like, yeah, I don't know what we fought about. It feels like we must have fought because you like ran away and spent a night on a mountain. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, it was weird. Like eight years ago, there was something about me that was like really drawn to that disaster. And I was keeping up with the news, you know, and they're just kind of like, huh, how strange, you know, Uh it's Um, this thing. I don't understand why I cared about, but I did for a time. And now my memory of why that was is, no, I have no idea. I just know that I was. And the thing happened eight years ago. And luckily, when it happened, we find out many residents of the town, they were evacuated to the high school grounds and that there were some injuries, but there were no deaths as a result of it. And so this disaster that he had found in this previous timeline of here's, you know, Mitsuha's name in a book of these hundreds of people who died, that that did not happen in this current timeline that he's in. I think that the story is like the town was conducting a routine emergency drill Mm -hmm. is what sort of people have settled on. But there was enough conspiracy theories about it that Mitsuha's father had to resign his office as mayor because they're like, sure, did you know this was going to happen? How did everyone survive? Yeah. And Taki also at this point doesn't know that he's the reason that everybody was able to survive it. And he's just like, yeah, it's weird. I didn't even know anybody there. I don't know why I was so obsessed with it. It was a thing that happened. That's what they both come away with. It was just this thing that we, we both sort of remember happened in the past. Whereas the last time they had really met up in this fashion, it had been their first date. Mm. This is, you know, years later, and it kind of ends similarly. It ends at the bridge, I think, where maybe they ended their last one. But this time she's, you know, wishing him all the best. She's got to go and waves at him. And as she waves at him, you can see that she's got a ring on her finger and she's married now. It's an interesting relationship that they have because I think she was kind of interested in him at one point, but she does kind of constantly leave him on the bridge. Like, she's just like, (sighs) I hope you find what you're looking for. She can tell that you're looking for something and it's not her. And so she went off an absolute awesome person that she is and like made happiness for herself. And you're like, honestly, good for you, Okadera. You were kind of out of his league anyway. You know, when you talk about like crossing paths or choices, there is a future where maybe Okadera and Taki could have been together, but like they weren't going the same direction, you know? It's sort of like she ends up leaving him on this bridge and his connection with Mitsuha kind of prevents him from like crossing that road. That's where Taki and Okadera kind of part ways. That's the end of Taki and Okadera. And Taki goes forward with his life, which is on to the next job interview, right? He's Mm -hmm. sitting in a cafe, he loves the cafes, sitting in a cafe and looking at this next, I think it's a construction company job interview that he's Mm going to go on and is interrupted a bit or distracted a bit by a woman at a nearby table who is talking about going to bridal fairs Mm -hmm. and wanting to go do that. And in the process of talking about them, calls her fiance Teshi which really gets his attention, even though he doesn't know why. It's Saya and Teshi, and they ended up together. In a real cafe this time. So she got her way. He left town Uh there in Tokyo, seeing their names in like the book of dead people, and then coming to this moment in the cafe and just being like, in this timeline, they survive and they are getting married. And it's just like this almost like joyful moment that Taki doesn't even know that he caused, you know, is just because of what he did. These two crazy kids are getting married and they can like bicker about the fact that she wants him to shave his beard and she promised to lose five pounds, but is eating cake. And it's just Uh like this like little normal moment that they have been given the chance to have. And he has no 
sense of it at all in its connection to him. He just, there's something about it that is familiar and that's the extent of it. And, and so like, he leaves, he's walking home. He goes home and it's snowing, you know, it's a very moody scene. And in this sort of darkness and snow ends up passing a woman who's holding an umbrella he notices that she has a red cord in her hair. And again, Mm -hmm. he's got no specific memory of anything about this, but something about it is enough that he pauses, kind of takes in what's there, and then decides to keep walking his way. And she, it's enough of something to whoever she is that she pauses and looks back at him walking away. And you think at that Mm -hmm. moment they might turn to each other and say, hey, what's up? And they don't. And they turn and they leave and they walk their separate ways in Tokyo. I was so scared the movie was over at this point. Uh The first time I watched it, I was like, is it done? I'm pretty sure she's on the phone and she's talking about her sister. And then that's another moment where you're like, oh, my gosh, Yotsuha. Yotsuha made it. Uh She's still going, you know, like (laughs) and also like the fact that. Mitsuha made it to Tokyo and Teshi and Sayaka are all they're all in Tokyo and it's just there's like this joy that's but you're still feeling this loss because they go their separate ways and they still don't understand their connection. And after all of this has happened, whatever time later it is, Taki is looking through a book about the Itomori disaster and in it he and I'm not I don't know that I remember why he was looking at it I think it was you know maybe just from all of these things that have been happening that have caused him to get curious about that time in mm-hmm. his life he's looking through and there are these pictures of different places in the town of Itomori somewhat familiar places to him including the Miyamizu shrine and that's the place in the book that he pauses at the picture and says to us, I think, in voiceover, why does looking at the landscape of a town that isn't there anymore make my chest feel so tight? As a viewer, I relate to him as well. I also can look at these paintings and photographs of things that were one way before something changed them or before a disaster, and you just kind of feel that nostalgia for like what once was, right? Yes. And so it's like almost very layered. Well, this movie has to end somehow, Mm -hmm. and it has not taken us to a completely satisfying place in terms of both of these characters' stories yet, but there is a few minutes left. The way we spend that few minutes in the movie is we get these separate images of Taki and Mitsuha who are waking up and getting ready for their respective days in separate places wherever they are in Tokyo. And they are heading into the city to do whatever it is that they do on a daily basis. And they are riding on separate trains going to these different places and different things that they have to do. But somewhere in the midst of all of this separateness, the two trains that they are on pass right next to each other. So subway trains passing just for an instant, crossing paths with one another. And it's during that moment that they are able to see one another in the different cars and make some sort of a connection before the trains move on. They don't even know who the other one is, but they get off the train and they start running around looking for each other. Running around stations, running around parts of Tokyo. I don't even know how they think they are going to run into one another. There's just the urge to get out and do it. And finally, they're running through the streets and there's this flight of stairs, like a walking path between buildings. And one of them's at the bottom of the stairs. One of them's at the top of the stairs. They finally find each other. And then you're kind of caught in this awkward social situation where you're like, why was I running? I think this is the person I meant to find, but I don't know them. And so one of them starts walking up the stairs. One of them starts walking down the stairs. And they're like, I don't know how to handle this. This is not a person I've been introduced to each other. And I don't know if this is on purpose. 
but the railing between them is red. Oh. And it's, it's when they walk past each other, it's very similar to having that red thread that binds them. And also, I will say Mitsuha is wearing the colors of her ribbon, which are red, yellow, and blue. It's primarily a red ribbon, but she's wearing those colors in her outfit. And there's that railing between them. And at the bottom and the top of the stairs, they stop again. They pass each other and you think, oh no, they're going to miss the chance again to say because neither one is able to reach out and say a word. And it's as Taki gets to the top of the stairs, he just can't deal with it anymore and turns around, calls to her and says, I'm wondering if we've met before. And that moment of connection releases in both of them all this kind of pent up emotion of the longing and the searching and all of that. And she's in tears and he's in tears. And she tells him, yeah, I I think maybe we have too, which there's enough to end your movie right there. but. There is one more moment, and it's the moment that makes all the waiting in this movie worthwhile. At the same time, after having said, I think I've met you before, what do they do? They ask for each other's name. And you're like, it's the title of the movie. (laughs) It's the title. And the movie just ends there. I'm crying at least. Like, I'm oh no, like, I was. No, absolutely. <laughs> I'm the cryy sort at these types of things. And I did. The thing that they value most that they had mm-hmm. had to leave behind before was each other's name. And it's yeah. this moment where they are able to find each other's name again. And it's the finding of the names then that will bring them back together in what we assume is going to be a lasting way. God, the thing it's saying about relationships too, you know, people say like, oh, you're better half, but it's the two of them aren't complete without each other based upon this experience they've had is like, they're always feel like they're missing something. And it's almost in finding each other, they found the other half of themselves. Yeah. And having that moment where they're asking for each other's names is even more impactful when you go through the whole movie and the movie starts with the question, who are you? She writes her name on his hand and there's the whole like handwriting scene when he loses her and leaving behind the thing that matters to you most is who this other person is. It doesn't have to have this happy ending where you see them being in a relationship because they've just found it. You know, they found each other and that's all that matters is they found it. The ending is exactly what is meant for filmmakers when you hear the term leave early, arrive late and leave early. This is sudden. The moment you get to the place to where things are going to work the way they should is the exact moment the film ends and there is no extra. And I think that that gives the same abruptness that her disappearing on the mountaintop gave. It gives the same abruptness that the hitting of the comet gave. And it gives us then this moment of abruptness at the end to end it. But in this case, it's abrupt in a great way. The first time I watched it, I was almost disappointed in the abruptness. They've been so sad for so long and I just want them to be happy. You know, (laughs) We focus so much on this loss and this grief But you're right. The movie is complete when the characters are complete. I'm really happy that we got to this completion as well. And I don't think we can do any better than to wrap it up right there and move into less looks. We are going to give our big everything about the movie that we weren't able to fit in elsewhere. And if you don't mind, I'm going to start and I'm going to go back. I wanted you to start. This is great. Perfect. So I'm going to go back to something I said earlier that hopefully I didn't edit out. So it makes sense here. The difficulty in a lot of movies, but in this movie specifically of talking about it in a way that imparts the feeling and feelings that the movie creates along the way. So this is a movie that to me 
has a very emotional core. It creates a lot of different types of emotions when you're watching it. It makes you feel the feels a lot. And it is very difficult in talking about plot and in talking about what characters do in really getting that conveyed to an audience. And so I think that would be the big caveat I would put on any of the discussion that we've had today. Watching it is going to be a very different experience, I think, in this case than maybe it is with some of the other films and other episodes that you or I or other people have talked about and then you've gone and watched. That's a great point. I mean, I know I'm not on the other episodes, but just talking about time travel in general and time travel movies, a lot of them feel like they are focused on the cerebral aspect of almost tricking the viewer or how does the time travel work? And that is kind of the point of the film. And this film, I feel like you're right, is so emotional and it's so difficult to describe. It's not like an impressionistic film. It certainly has a plot. It certainly has a time clock that you're working against. It has all the elements of a film, but it strays into that territory of films that lean a lot more heavily on how you feel about a moment versus what Mm -hmm. the moment does in relationship of the plot. You know, that quote that we get from Taki when he's like, you never know when this is going to disappear. So I want to make something heartwarming now. Yeah. That is like exactly how I feel about the film. It deals with impermanence and Mm -hmm. tragedy in a deeply human way that is ultimately hopeful. It creates all of these like beautiful poetic moments. In doing so, I think that it sets itself apart because it is trying to not only convey a feeling, but say something about humanity. I think it's almost a surprisingly happy ending, which is one reason I love it because I love a happy ending, but it's sort of like taking something that's so visceral as a tragic natural disaster that kills a lot of people and telling a deeply human story of two mixed up crazy kids just trying to get through high school who end up body swapping with each other. And you don't think those things are going to mix, and they do. And the way they do is just so human and beautiful, and it doesn't deny the fact that you lost something because we still lost Itamori. It just makes it hopeful. It's not often that you, that I, watch a movie that gives me that opportunity to just sort of sit and wash in the movie versus having to follow the machinations of a plot. The plot of this movie, if you watch it just once, it's almost so confusing that you really just kind of feel the feelings the first time through. I mean, like you kind of do figure it out. They're pretty good at explaining it to you, but I had to probably watch it two or three times before it became one of my favorite films because the emotions will come through even if you don't understand the whole timeline nonsense the first time around. The closest thing I can relate it to is my experience watching Christoph Krzyzlowski's Blue from the mm-hmm. Blue, White, and Red trilogy, if you've ever seen that. it's I have not. Tell it's me. It's a... Go, go see it. <laughs> came, came out in the 90s. It's a movie that just is an atmosphere. And mm-hmm. you watch it, and you could watch it just for that and get to the end of it. And then when you go back and watch it later, then you understand, oh, okay, well, then this goes to this, and this is plot, and I understand that now. People have called this Makoto Shinkai's masterpiece. I would agree with that. I haven't only seen one of his other films, but it, I do think that this is a rare moment when you have a film that does that for you, like what you're talking about, even though I love a lot of films, I don't know if I have a lot of films that has that emotion and then that discovery and like rewatch aspect. It's almost like your relationship with the film changes the more you watch it, you know? That's, I like I that. Know. Yeah. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that everything that you can do with animation, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that they were able to do here that you couldn't do otherwise. I'm glad we're talking about that. 
because the second thing I want to mention is, you know that they're working on a live action version of this, right? I think I heard that. And then I think I got scared and blocked it out of my mind. Yeah, I'm a little terrified about it after having seen this and after seeing what this was able to do the way it was, because I think this was the first non-studio Ghibli anime that really pushed anime into the mainstream in Japan, right? This was Mm. not just a great movie. It was a movie that did things and changed some trends, I would imagine. Back Mm. in 2017, into 2017, it was announced that J.J. Abrams, so Mm. Star Wars, Star Trek guy, everybody, Mm. and the screenwriter of Arrival and Bird Box, Eric Hesserer, were working on some sort of live action remake that Paramount Pictures and Bad Robot were going to do together. Anime is so distinct in the emotions it evokes. I don't know. I'm trying to decide. Well, it's gone through since that time. It's gone through some some changes. Okay. So it went through a few different people. It went away from Abrams and from Eric Hesserer. And in October of 22, Mark Webb, who did 500 Days of Summer, Mm -hmm. then signed on to do it. He left. Lee Isaac Chung, who did Minari. Oh, okay. Yep. Was working off of, uh, I think, a draft that was written by Emily Gordon, who did The Big Sick, and they were working on something together to bring this to life. None of that came to be. The latest iteration of this that I was able to find is that they have brought Carlos Lopez Estrada, who was Oscar-nominated for Raya and the Last Dragon. Okay. And he has been announced as he is both going to direct and write the live-action version of this. No timeline announced that I can find. They are working with Toho, which is Mm -hmm. the Japanese studio. Um, And Toho has specifically requested that this version of your name not be from a Japanese perspective or from an Eastern perspective. They want it to be from a Western point of view. And so reportedly things could change. Reportedly, Mm -hmm. it will have a young Native American woman who is in Mm -hmm. the rural area and a young man from Chicago who discovered that they're swapping. Okay. So I have so many questions. I have so many questions. I have so many concerns. <laughs> I would love to. Some... I feel like, what is the, you know, you're kind of already answering that, but like, what is the American version of this? Is this going to be like a volcano eruption? I don't huh. know. I'm happy they're bringing someone in with animation experience. I'm just concerned about how this is going to translate. <laughs> Yeah, I am too. And into live action. I not I'm, like into English. <laughs> I am rarely a fan of remaking films. I am rarely a fan of doing live action anything that was animated mm-hmm. previously. I'm rarely a fan. And so yeah. I will be walking into this hesitantly, but you know, I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed that things turn out well. I'll have faith that the red cord of time is gonna make things work out here. <laughs> Well, there we go, everybody. That's your name. We hope you liked it. We hope you understood it most of all. And uh, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> because I didn't. So it <laughs> <laughs> you understand it so I understand, well. Josh. I understand it well enough. How about that? I understand it That's well good. enough. Okay. You just have to go watch it again. Maybe I'll do that right after we play. You can't handle the truth. You Can't Handle the Truth is our multiple choice quiz section here on Subgenre. As always, we play or you play, Mary, for a prize that I have typically absolutely no way of being able to give you. And (laughs) today you are playing for, are you ready for it? Oh, yeah. Hit me. Your own personal rad wimp. All right. Are you ready to play? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'm fired up now. Like, let's go. (laughs) I have to preface this with something. So 
the questions today, as they typically do, have a theme. Mm-hmm. That theme certainly sprung off of something I was thinking whenever I was putting together this episode, but kind of like in the movie where it just sort of dissipates with time and you don't quite remember what you were thinking. I don't remember what I was thinking when I chose this topic and put all of these together. So I'm just going to make something up and hope it sounds right. And so today we have been talking about your name. And so this quiz segment, we are going to talk about your head. Oh, so all the questions today will have something to do with heads. And I don't remember why. All right, I'm ready. Here we go. I have zero idea why we're doing it this way, but this is how it's going to be. So uh, here we go, Mary Thurman. Ready? Question number one. You've heard the saying losing your head, but every single day, the average human head loses approximately 50 to 100 of what? Is it A, brain cells, B, hairs, or C, ounces of saliva? Okay, weirdly enough, I like this question because I think it's hairs, but if it's brain cells, that also is consistent with my human experience. So (laughs) I'm going to go with B, hairs, and my constant vacuuming of my apartment is going to be the reason why. (laughs) Yes, that is absolutely correct. Every day it is normal to get rid of 50 to 100 hairs from your head. That is, of course, why we're picking them out of the drain and vacuuming them up and finding them in places we don't want them on our clothes. And it's said when the body sheds significantly more hairs than that, there's actually a term for it, excessive hair shedding. And the medical... That makes sense. Right. That's the common term for it. I like the medical term for it, telogen effluvium. Telogen effluvium? This sounds like a steampunk power source. They're right. like, we right. run out of the effluvium. It's what you use to create time travel. Right. That's exactly <gasps> what it is. We need more intelligent effluvium. Oh, I love that so much. You got the first one. You just got to get right, one more see. in this uh, series of three. So let's see if you can do it when we move to question two. Using parts of an animal's head in cooking, it spans continents, it spans cultures. So you can think of dishes like pork cheek or fish head stew or head cheese. Hmm. But the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius Antonius may have set some sort of record when he ordered up 600 of what? Was it A, ostrich brains, B, duck beaks, or C, sheep tongues? Oh, man. Okay. 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 Here's the thing. People do consume tongue. People do consume brains. True. I've never heard of someone consuming a beak. I'm not sure what beaks are made out of, but it feels kind of cartilage-y. Sheep's tongues make sense. It feels like it would be more accessible. However, for an emperor and for it to be recorded in history, I'm gonna say A, ostrich brains. Yes, look at you with your logic coming up with answers. Yes, it is said that Marcus Aurelius once hosted a dinner where he served his 600 guests ostrich heads. And it's also said that he had previously presented things like peacock tongues, camel heels, and flamingo brains. There's a lot of foods that I don't enjoy, but... I'd try it, you know, like I'm just like to be at that banquet. I'd at least try a bite. You've gotten two. That's great. Look, logic has brought you this far. So now this one's just gravy. Try to get three for three and get you a perfect score. You ready? I get the raddest of wimps. The raddest of wimps. Here we go with question number three. In the 19th century, an aptly named neurologist became famous for making important discoveries about how the brain works by performing experiments on his own body and then recording and publishing the results. What was this neurologist's name? Was it A, Sebastian Skull, B, Norbert Noggin, or C, Henry Head? 
Oh my gosh. The fact that this is even a fact is amazing. I think one, alliterative, beautiful. I know you came up with the alternate answers for this, Josh, and your mind is a beautiful place to be. And maybe that's why this is all about. Maybe it's because these are mind-bending movies. Mm. Is that what we're talking about? Sure. Sounds great. Let's do that. Okay. Well, I happen to work for a company named Noggin, so I've got to go with B. Norbert Noggin. No, I'm sorry. It was actually C. Henry Head. Oh, that's just as good. <laughs> it's just as good. I mean, you know, he was a British neurologist. He would do things like have his sensory nerves severed and then reconnected to map how sensation returned over time. And so he could feel it himself and be able to document it. Oh my gosh. Talk about write what you know. That's taken it to a probably <laughs> excessive degree. It's weird, dude. But an additional fun fact about Henry Head besides his name. Can you guess mm -hmm. the name of the guy who published his biography? Was it like Bob Biography? Russell Brain. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, this is crazy. Well, Mary, you it was two out of three, but you did it. You have won. You can't handle the truth and have won your own personal rad wimp. Congratulations to you. Yay! That sound means we are finally to rave rental or refund. This is where we give our final thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle for this movie. Today we are doing that for your name. Uh, is it a rave? This movie is amazing. Everybody drop what you're doing now and go see it. Is it a rental? Yeah, it was pretty good. I might catch it when it's on somewhere sometime, maybe on Crunchyroll. Or is it a refund? Not for me. Going to see something else a different time. Mary Thurman, soon to be Mary. What's the married name? Lambert. Uh, Lambert. Yeah. Rave rental or refund? I mean, I don't know if our listeners can tell from my general excitement and inability to stop talking about it is for sure a rave for me. I would say maybe don't let little kids watch it. The disaster scene. A little heavy. And the, yeah. A little heavy. And then there's some, you know, the like teenage antics, but rave, strong rave, no question about it. What about you? surprisingly to me, probably not surprising to anybody who's seen the movie, but surprising to me, it's a rave. I am not really an animation watching person. I watch them here and there, but I don't watch a lot of them. And the ones that I do watch, I don't watch a lot of anime. And mm -hmm. so coming into this movie, I'm always a little, eh, maybe I'll like it, maybe I won't. And walked out of this movie loving it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And thought it is one of the better movies I have seen in years. So rave oh, for me. I'm so glad to hear that, Josh. It's obviously because you agree with me, but also just I'm so glad to hear that you liked it. It's a movie that I like so much. And even just hearing someone who's, you know, opinion I value being the same about it and having the same experience. Like, I kind of wish I could go back and watch it for the first time, you know? And I'm so happy that you had that experience and now we can talk about it. Which Yay. we just did for the last several hours. I'm both happy that that happened. I'm sad I can't go back and have the first experience again, but such is life. Maybe it will fade away with time and I'll come back and be able to watch it fresh again at some point. But regardless, we got two raves on this film and I think that's where we're going to end up. So uh, thank you, Makoto Shinkai. Seriously, thank you, Makoto Shinkai. Thank you. Oh my gosh. What was the in-betweener's name, Josh? Miyuki Nakagawa. Miyuki Nakagawa. Without you, the animation wouldn't have looked so smooth, my friend. And that gets us to the end of the episode where I come to you and say, Mary Thurman, tell us what we need to know about you. What do you got going on? Where can we find you? All that stuff. And tell us about the wedding. 
the wedding is coming up. When this podcast comes out, we'll probably be less than a month from the wedding. Um, things that you need to know about me. Good gravy. I work for Noggin. Come find my stuff on the Noggin app. It also goes to Amazon channels, Roku, and you know all of our linear partners. And if you have a little baby between the ages of like two and six, we're trying to help kids get ready for preschool with the Paw Patrol and all of their favorite Nick Jr. characters teaching the little kids how to read. And Josh, thank you for letting me come back and be on this podcast for the third time? Is this a three-peat? It's a three-peat. <gasps> We're sealing it off with you as Mary Thurman, and hopefully we'll have you back for a fourth one as Mary Lambert. I would love that. I will try to create a whole new persona that is Mary Lambert. Who is she? Maybe there's something in my name. Eh? Ah. <laughs> This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, animation writer at Noggin, Mary Thurman. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you've been waiting for the right time to subscribe to Subgenre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find bingeable shows like this one, this is the time. We've got new episodes, legacy episodes, and a host of bonus content for you to enjoy. You can help us find more listeners to all of that so we can keep making more shows by telling your friends about us and then by leaving your five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's, say it with me now, massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. Want to make our day and send Subgenre a little donation? You'll find the link to do it at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta thing and whatever that other freaking platform is called now, both at SubgenrePod. Even more time twisters are just ahead. Keep listening. And in the meantime, always remember... We're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.